I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to introduce our guest today? Absolutely. I want to thank Jared for joining us today. And Jared's got a really interesting encounter down in Southern Oregon. And um, so we're very excited about that. <clears throat> and it's near a place that's near and dear to Will and I's heart, Union Creek, Oregon. Uh, a lot of activity down there. Um, but before we get going, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. And if you like the show, let us know. Click the like and the subscribe button and leave us a comment. And if you want to support the show, you can do so. We've got a link to, <clears throat> excuse me, Patreon in, in the description. Losing my voice here. So um, I'm going to hand this off to Jared. Jared, just go ahead and um, fill us in. What happened? How did your day start? And how did this progress? And, and um, you know, what was what were you guys doing and what happened? All right. So this started probably about in September or October, uh, 2021, sometime in the fall. <clears throat> my, uh, my oldest son, he mentioned that one of his friends, uh, took him up to this park up past Union Creek. It was called, uh, Farewell Bend. And, um, and he said there was some fish back there. I think it was actually the Rogue River that runs right behind it. Um, I wasn't aware of that at the time. I thought it might have been, I mean, it's pretty small. I thought it might have been a creek. But uh, I uh, I was going to take him up there because he wanted to go fishing. So I brought the family up. Um, yeah, we probably got up there. I mean, we went to Farewell Bend, but they had a gate that, uh, blocking the park so we couldn't get in. So I had to go further up and we we're just looking for somewhere to go. And I pulled off somewhere by where highway 62 meets the 230 around there. And, uh, found a place to just pull off the road. And, uh, I thought I heard water nearby. So we just hiked, um, you know, toward the river and uh, eventually found it found a good spot and it was uh the bank of it was just solid rock and uh i let my son fish uh, right off that and uh it was probably somewhere around noon and then we, we had lunch with us uh, and we stayed there most of the day and around <clears throat> probably around uh, four o'clock um, <clears throat> I wanted to find a better spot before we left. So I went by myself up the, the river in just a little bit, uh, not even that far, but I had to uh, go more in toward the woods away from the river 
to kind of climb a hill. And then from there, I cut in back toward the river, but I was going through trees and, and then, uh, there were a lot of trees. I couldn't see the river from where I was at. And I kept on, thought I heard something like, um, like pine needles crunching, like a uh, branch break. And I would stop and then listen. And then that would stop. I wouldn't hear anything. I would start walking again. And I think I heard something. And I did notice a, a slight smell, like a, maybe like a skunk. Um, but I really didn't think much of it. And I kept on walking toward the river. And that, that's where I saw it. And I saw something. I didn't know what it was right at the beginning or even after. I wasn't sure what I saw. But I took a picture of it. I had to zoom in. And it was moving, but it was moving away from me. I can see it behind trees. And it was standing upright, bipedal. Um, you know, it was... No, very tall, you know, taller than a human. Um, At first, I thought it was a bear. But, I mean, the way it was walking, there was no way. I mean, I I saw its back more than anything. And uh, I I took that picture, and I I didn't have a gun on me. I didn't want to go anywhere near it. Uh, I just got out of there. I knew my family was down, down below, not that far away. And, uh, I didn't know if it had been watching us the whole time or, or what, but I went back and told them we needed to get the heck out of here, you know? And, uh, we packed our stuff and, and, uh, booked it back to the truck. Um, even afterwards, I, I wasn't sure, like, you know, I was doubting myself. I was like, well, that could have been, could have been, maybe it was a bear, but, you know, the more I think about it, there, there's no way. And, um, did you notice what color it was? It it was a, a real dark brown, like almost like a black, but I think it was more of a brownish Okay. And um how far away was it from you? Uh I would say about um and um uh, I would say probably uh I know I was in any closer than thirty feet. Uh could have been maybe forty to thirty feet. That's close. Um, but yeah. That's as close as I got. And then I started to realize that I mean the thought came across my head, you know, that this could be a Sasquatch. Um but you know, I it's hard. It, it's like I kept on thinking, well maybe it was something else, it had to be something else. You know, well, that's kind of where people go. I think a lot of times is um, Will's got a great 
term for that, and it's outside of your frame of reference. It it you're you're trying to fit fit it into some kind of a slot, and it doesn't fit. It's it's just not right. something we're familiar with. Um, and you said it was definitely standing upright, and it's right. kind of a dark it was, brown. It, yeah, it was moving. It was moving more away from me, but on the on the bank of the river. So oh, okay, was, so do you had a, a river between you and it? No, no, I was, um, I, where I was walking, I wasn't walking along the bank. I kind of went in the woods a little bit to go up a hill. It, I was like, almost like I was following like a game trail. And, uh, and then, then I cut toward, more toward the river. Um, but you couldn't straight up see it because there were so many trees. You couldn't see the river from where I was walking. But uh, yeah, that was the closer my, I got to my, the river. Well, that was kind yeah, of I, my next question was, I'm familiar with the terrain where, where you're at, and um, it's uh, not that real thick, brushy stuff like what you get in the Coast Hills or Western Cascades, but is it more sort of like the, uh, you know, the pines, the tall ponderosas and sugar pines and stuff like that? or uh, uh, It was more like, I would say like Douglas fir or Doug firs, okay. Cedar and um, but there were a lot of small trees and um, a lot of branches in the way. I mean, just get, I mean, just getting close to the river. I mean, you're walking through, uh, trying to find the best way to get there. You just you're going in between, and and then uh, and I got that picture. But I mean, not having a weapon on me, I, I was, you know, I, I don't know. This is a wild animal. I don't know anything about it. You know, I don't know if it's going to attack me. But I, you know, I don't know what it's going to do. And my family's not that far away. Yeah. So that's one of your concerns is uh, protecting your family, right? Right. Yeah, their safety, and of course your safety. Um, right. And. I apologize if you already mentioned this, but about what time of day was this? Um, so this was later in the evening, maybe about, uh, I mean, approximately four o'clock. Oh, okay. All right. Well, the sun's still up. All right. You right. Yeah, the sun up. was. Okay. Um, yeah. So you see this thing. Now what do you do? Do you head back to the family and uh, do you tell you know your wife and everybody what what yeah. what you saw or and what was yeah I tried to when I saw it I tried to get the best best picture I could and uh, just to have something I approve or try to figure it out later but I went uh, directly to where my family was I just took off running and then. Uh, I really didn't have time to talk when I got there. I was just out of breath, and I was, I was like, "Let's get out of here," you know. Like, I didn't say it exactly like that, but you know, I was kind of might have phrased know, it a little differently, a little more emphatically. Yeah, yeah. I understand that. That that, that happens. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, you I still told have I, a picture. Uh, yes. yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I posted it on. Uh, on a Facebook uh, group. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'd love to see it. So what okay. was um, what was your wife's response? Well, well she was kind of scared, but uh, she was just wondering what I was talking about. And then I said, I, I don't know what I saw. I think I saw a Bigfoot. I think I saw a bear. I, I don't know, but it was it was right there. We have to go. And she probably I'm she probably picked yeah, we, up on your adrenaline. Yeah, we we talked about it more in the truck and I was just saying, you know, I I don't know what that was. I mean I took that picture and I showed it to her. And uh you know, I I told her, you know, I you know, this you know, maybe it was a bear, but it was walking on its hind legs, you know. And, uh, but it just doesn't seem like something a bear would do, you know. Well, and, and the height again was what now? I would say around eight feet, um, okay. but that's just a guess. Big bear. Yeah. Tall bear. Right. <laughs> I, I, I'm. <clears throat> and the legs were a little bit longer than what a bear's legs would be right and if it's a bear i'm just going out on a limb here but you're going to see the ears right and they don't right. they stand on their hind legs but they don't i don't think they walk away on their hind legs because you know if they're trying to get away from you everything i've seen of a, a bear in oregon is uh, you see its butt as it's on all fours trying to get away running running from you so Right, and then the hair was more nappy. It was like, it was like, more like hair rather than just like a furry bear, you know. Right. Okay. So, um, how? And your wife was, you know, obviously she's a little, you know, I, I'm assuming a little concerned as well. So, and she was accepting what you had to say that you thought it could be a Bigfoot, right? Right. I mean, right now she just not sure what it is. But we haven't been back. I wanted to go back to see if I could see some tracks. Um, it's just with work. It's just that time of year. Um, I just never found time. I was going to go back the following weekend. And then uh, being in the military part-time, you know, I had drill. And uh, that following weekend, I just didn't, I just ended up just not going back. But uh, I just wonder if it had some tracks left there. Yeah, that's always a good, um, you know, will I had, uh yeah, I had some some evidence that I found, and Will told me to go back, and it was actually it was a stump that had been destroyed and manipulated in a very specific way, and he said, "Well, go yeah, back yeah. there and check the ground," and I did, and I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, you remember that?" Within sixty yep. seconds, I was like, "They were all over the place," <laughs> and I was huh. like, oh, "That's a good. There, there's an obvious thing. Go look at the ground." <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this this is an interesting and listen, Southern Oregon, your Rogue River, and Union Creek. That's uh, yeah. There's just a lot of activity down there. 
So, yeah. uh, um, listen, do you have any questions for us? Um, well, I'd like to read about that uh, their story from Union Creek. Oh, absolutely. We'll send it to you. It over. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, no, I don't think I have any further questions at this time. Okay, well, keep in touch with us, and if you do, you know, any you can contact us anytime, and any question is fine with us. All right. All right, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, and go ahead and stay on after uh, after we get off the air here. We'll ask you a couple questions. Okay. All right. Well, appreciate it, Jared, and folks, stay tuned for the next piece. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to introduce our guest today? I, I really would. This is Janae, and Janae's had some Bigfoot experience. And um, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. And also, if you like the show, let us know. Click the like and subscribe button if you haven't subscribed already. And if you want to become a Patreon, uh, you can support us that way. There's a link in the description. And actually, you can do it for as little as uh, a dollar a month. So we're ready to go. And Janae, I'm going to hand the mic to you and tell us what happened. All right, Tom. No, don't mind if I do. Good evening, everyone. I have had several encounters, but the first one I'm going to give you is the account that happened in Spokane, Washington. Uh, I was a little girl. I was about nine years old, summer of 1998. And we would always go up to Washington State for the summertime. Sometimes we would stay for the uh whole year but mostly for the summer and when I went up there the atmosphere just it was so beautiful and nice but also as soon as I stepped out of the car I got the sense of dread and like I was being watched but I could not see anything and as time went on we I we all would start hearing weird noises first we would hear what sounded like a dog barking but it sounded like a a little bit between a coyote and a like a woman screaming and it frightened us to death and when we when we weren't hearing the uh, the barks we would hear whoops we would hear whoop, 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 whoop. and then we would hear that the tree knocks were the worst it sounded as if some, you would just hear it and it was just bang 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 it sounded like somebody taking a baseball bat and just banging the bat against the tree until it just shattered. It was that loud. And we would also have the slaps from the side of the house. It would sound like this, a rhythm. And it would just continue for hours into the, into the night. And it would, it would begin about sunset and then it wouldn't stop until maybe 12 or one o'clock in the morning when they went when everything was quiet and it was just so eerily quiet up there it was nothing but woods the nearest neighbor's house was maybe two or three miles down the road and beyond so if you screamed for help who would hear you and it really gave us a fright but we never we never saw anything i didn't see anything until that same summer, but a few weeks later after we got up there, my cousin Bubby came there and 
he we kind of had to keep an eye on him because he had a little bit of a disability and he would wander off. And one day me and him were walking along the back side of the house on the way to the creek. And we had three dogs, Lucky, Lassie, and Lucy with us. They were all um, border collies and they would never hurt a fly. They would never, whatever would come to us or them, they would just send them away with a bark. But this time, when we so when when we went down there, all three of the dogs and me and my cousin were down there. And as we were going down there, I kept I kept hearing something that sounded like trees just moving and creaking. But they weren't moving and creaking because of the air. They were moving and creaking like somebody or something was like literally pushing them or shaking them. And we kept stop. When we stopped, it stopped. As we walked, it walked. Whatever was in those trees, we didn't see it until we got down to the backside of that creek. And when we stepped out into that clearing, we saw water. That's all we were thinking about was getting, you know, the dogs having fun, us having a little fun just to be by ourselves. And I kept hearing another little I kept hearing it, and I asked Bubby, was that him? He said, no. I thought it was you. I said, no, I'm with. I'm sitting right here. And as I said, I, I jumped up, and I looked around, because I have just nine brothers and sisters. Me make, I make ten. I thought it was one of them that came down. So I said, hey, guys, enough's enough. Cut the crap. Come on out of there. And when I said cut the crap, come on out of there, this huge black creature just stepped out of the wood out of the uh woods this this thing i know it was a man a, a, a male bigfoot he was about eight or nine hundred pounds he had nothing but gray what looked to me like grayish black grayish hair with a little black mixed in it and the the smell that came from it was just awful and when he came out i didn't i was standing close to where he had just came out and we looked at him and he looked at us. We didn't break a step for five minutes. And when he looked at us, he looked at us with such hatred and such malice. We were frozen to the spot. We could not move. And then from my right rear, another Bigfoot came out and did Mr. Will wanted, this is the same as your encounter. She came right out and stood next to him. So there was a female Bigfoot and a male Bigfoot, and the female had uh, breasts, and she was about maybe seven or eight feet tall, and she was a cinnamon brown color. And both of their faces, to me, it looked like two giant apes with a man's and what with a man's face. I, when as us being children, we never were told about creatures like this. We've never even heard of it. And it just scared the damn daylights out of us. We didn't know what to do. The dogs were no good. They took, they saw what came out of there. They peed all over the place and then they left us hanging. So I just grabbed my cousin's hand and we ran and these two, oh my God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, fellas. These these creatures were bounding after us like, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything move that fast. They were just, they were on us like hotcakes. If we were trying to go to the left or the right, we couldn't do 
They couldn't do it. They were just, they were intent on having a having a hot lunch, and we were the hot lunch. And at one time or another, me and my cousin separated, and I went. I tried to go back and look for him. He was gone. We didn't hear anything. We. I didn't. I tried to get my. I went back to the cabin and burst in the door, and my family was looking at me like, where the hell have you been? And by the look on their face, they figured that's not a good question to ask. First thing they said is, where, where is Bubby? I said, he went off in the woods. We got separated, and I couldn't go. I tried to go look for him, but this thing was on me. I couldn't even make a right or a left move. So I did the only thing I could do, go back and find somebody who could help me. And... Everybody, all the siblings, my grandparents, and my parents, and my na- our neighbor who was there for, with us came to help look for him. We never found him. We called the uh, we called the uh, the authorities, and they came out. All these other people that my dad knew because of his uh, job and everything, he called them out. We never found Bubby. We never found his body. We didn't even hear. We heard a little screaming here and there, and it just terrified us to death. I have never, I've never seen a creature like this, and I don't want to see it a, 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 a tenth time. It is very terrifying. It is very, this is something that you just can't pull a camera out on. This is something that if you see it, for me, it'd be a flight mode because to see two of these in the same sitting is a frightening thing. And if folks don't believe that this is not a primate, well, it is. And they do exist. They are here. And it. And I'm telling you, this these creatures will not will not uh, will not uh, hesitate to kill you. They'll kill you as soon as looking you. These creatures do exist. They are real. And I am at the point, I don't give a what anyone says or thinks. I know what I saw. And the, four, and the folks that came out there, they, they gave us a, a police report where they looked falsified as if they were trying to hide something. And I kept asking, because I'm the kind of person, I ask a lot of questions. I said, Dad, that's not what happened. And my father just looked at me and kept shaking his head like he couldn't tell me anything. And he couldn't. And to, from that day to this one. We've never found them. No one knows a thing. And if they do know a thing, they're not allowed to say anything. Everything, it was like a cover-up. And after that, I didn't hear any, we never heard anything about it. It was like a, okay, it happened. This is not what you saw, but this is what you saw kind of thing. And I'm telling you, that that one was one of the, I, I don't even know which one was the scariest, but I would say that. Because to see two of these things in one sitting, you you don't know what you're in for, and these creatures will not hesitate to grab you. Uh, they come they come to the house and knock on the knock around. They're looking for who they want to know how many people is in there. One and two, they want to know are they a threat to are are we a threat to them? And we are. And it was just a scary situation, Tom and Will. I don't wish this on anybody, and. It's. I haven't talked to anyone else about this, but you all. So, I am. This is my first time letting anyone know about this. But these creatures do exist, and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Are you there, Tom? Yeah, it's. Uh, oh. Yeah, scary situation. Yeah. It, 
And Tom, I, I have another one. This one happened in Topeka, Kansas, and I was at a, can you all hear me? Yeah, we oh, yeah. can hear you fine. Okay. I was in Topeka, Kansas. I was a few years older than uh, the first encounter. I was about 11 and I was at summer camp and me and a, uh, our campmates, we were all told not to go uh, in certain areas, and if you do go there, you go there with an adult. Do not venture off by yourself. But they never told us why. And I told everybody there the story of what happened to me. And you know how kids are. Oh, that's crap. It didn't happen. It's not real. I heard it wasn't. It was a bunch of. I said, okay. I said, I'm telling you what I know. You may not have your have an encounter, but these things are real. So. I, me and a friend of mine, we were out there, we were, um, we were fishing down by the, uh, one of the creeks back there, and it was where a camp counselor and so, someone could see us or hear us if we needed help, or they had to come and get us for what happened, for whatever, and across the creek, well, across from us on the other side of the creek, there was a preacher standing in the trees, and my friend looked at me and said, what the heck, what the heck is that across the, street, across the stream? I said, Amy, let's get the hell on out of here. Let's go. She said, what, what is that? I said, Let, Amy, let's go. We, we hauled butt back to the camp. When we got back there, everybody was looking surprised. They didn't know whether we had, some, they, they thought somebody had gotten hurt. And Amy was just was just howling about, we saw this big black hairy preacher and I'm, he's coming towards us. And I, I told them, we got to get out of here. And they said, the, the adults were trying to say, Janae, calm down. Tell, and Amy, calm down. Tell us exactly what you both saw. Amy was not able to tell them anything. She was in shock. I was in shock, but I was able to at least tell them something. I said, I saw something. I don't know whether, what it, I know what it was, but I don't think you all want to know. We have to get out of here now. And the camp counselors were worried because they thought maybe there was a um, somebody who was like a, a, a hermit or somebody in the woods, somebody shooting illegally near the campsite. They had no idea. So there was panic and pandemonium going around there. And as all of this was going on, there was a preacher watching everything we did and how we knew how how somebody knew was there. There was somebody point, said, look, there's something in the trees. There's somebody in the trees. And from that point on, it was just pure pandemonium. Every, the children were all screaming, adults trying to get us to calm down. And this whole while, this thing, he had no shame in his game of stepping out to let us know he was there. He stepped completely out of the clearing and looked at all of us. And I, it was just hell after that. We had no. We ran back to the dorm, the little, the dorm, the uh, cabins. There were no phones out there, so we had to have those. We had cell. They had the adults had cell phones, so they were trying to call and make calls out to the police. And it by the time the cops or anybody got there, that thing was gone. He when he saw us running, he ran with us in the in the trees right next to us, and we couldn't see him, but we knew he was there, and. If anybody stopped, God forbid, he sure would have grabbed them. He was going, he was, this thing was going 
oh, he was going so fast, it didn't look like he was going to stop. And both of these creatures, to me, looked like, they looked like bodybuilders, like a WWE wrestler. That's how big and massive they were. Muscular. Yeah, very big and muscular. And it it just, it for the second, that was one of the second ones, and it scared us, to, it scared everybody crazy. We... Camp was camp right then and there was it was over. The adults managed to get a hold of our parents. My parents came down there running. They knew they already had a feeling of what was going on, but the other parents had no idea. And the other children were just they were frightened. The adults too. We just wanted to get the hell out of there. There was a situation where we all could have been ambushed right then and there. The me and my cousin we ambushed right then and there. And in a way. These creatures were around that were around our cabin in Spokane, Washington, because they literally would come every day the same time and stop the noise every day the same night. It would just be it was a continuing pattern. And you would never hear anything, but you would sure smell it. And the family never saw me and Bubby were the only ones that kind of saw this thing. Everyone else in my family had no idea what we saw. They still say today that we made everything up, that I made everything up. And I say, I don't care what you or anyone else says. I saw these things. I saw it. And there's nothing you or no one else can say to make me change my mind or doubt what I saw. There are folks today who say, oh, well, why didn't you take a picture of it? Why didn't you uh, have a footprint? I said, let me ask you something. If you, if you saw what I saw and I showed them a picture of it, would you be able to take a picture of it? Some people are able to do that. but that me, I was not thinking about taking a picture. I was thinking about getting the hell out of there. And this, these encounters are just as, they're scary. They're not easy to talk about. Didn't you tell me one involving a bus, chasing a bus or something? Yeah. And tell them about that when, when you're ready. That's a good one. And t- Tom and Will, are you all still here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I haven't gone anywhere. We're still here. Okay, and... There was another encounter. This one happened in Kansas City, Missouri. We were on a bus trip um, going to a resort, and we were all on coach buses. And I sort of got I got the same sense of dread that I got from the first encounter to the second encounter to this one. Every time I've gone in the woods, it's been that whole that same sense of dread. Nothing but. And I knew that something was going to go wrong even before it did and even before I saw anything. And as we were going up into the into the woods where the resort is, I looked out my window. I just said something is just not right, but I, I don't see anything, but I feel that same feeling. Something's not right out here. And we got about maybe five minutes up into the clearing and one of these these creatures just stepped out into the middle of the road, and he stood in front of the bus. We had two buses going up, two two packed buses full of people going up. This thing stood in the middle of the road. He was about 10, 11 feet, 10 or 11 feet tall, a brownish, darkish brown color with a little tint of red in it. And his eyes and us, in his eyes, he said, we're not going anywhere. Pete, the bus driver, said, what the hell is that? I said, I went up there to Pete. I said, Pete, 
Get on that radio and tell the other bus in the back of us to back on down the hill as careful as he can. And he was trying to say, we got to get you guys up. I said, Pete, please do what I say. Please don't, please don't try to go past this creature and don't try to hit it. You're not going to make it. None of us will. And as soon as they saw us backing down, there were about four or five of them that just came bounding out of the, oh, goodness, it was so terrible. These creatures came bouncing out of the woods. They were, they were just about the same size as the one that stood in front of the first bus. They were banging on the bus, growling. They were trying to turn both buses over with, oh, good, about 30 people on each bus. Turn us over to either the side or turn us over completely upside down. We were screaming, hollering for help. And Pete said, how the hell is an animal like this strong? Nobody could understand it. And when I, by the time, it was an ambush situation. When they, when we started to, when we blew the horn and turned the lights on, they all disappeared and scattered. And for that trip, we didn't make it to that resort. I told Pete, put the pedal to the metal and back the bus up and let's go. And he didn't, he didn't, Pete did not detest. He did just what I told him to do. We had to inch, we had to inch by inch down, back down that road, but we did it. Because Pete said, I'm not going forward with that thing out there. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, what we saw. And after that, there were more encounters, but that one right there, to be on a bus, reminds me of that fellow that came on a couple of months back and the, the Bigfoot was there shaking his trailer and growling. Reminds me of that one right there. This, I'm telling you, these creatures are vicious. They will not distinguish between how many people is there and if it's one person. They will surely kill you as soon as looking you. And like I said, they are a primate. They do exist. And... Thank goodness we never fed any of them because just like they 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 are bitches when you stop feeding them. That I do know. My brother gave it something one day and it kept coming back. And he ended up telling us at the end that he fed it. I said, I don't know what you did that for, but now we've got a problem. And now for the as far as the cabin in Washington, none of us really go up there. I haven't been up there in six years. I don't plan on going back there. That was my first encounter, and that one just stuck in my head with the rest of them. And this thing is, it's here. We can't do anything about it. I mean, there are folks that we watch, by me being the going all over the place in the summertime and the, and the uh, fall, I pretty much know what to take, what to do, what not to do. And me and my father have literally done everything together, gone everywhere. And we watch people who literally go into the woods, whether it be hiking, fishing, hunting, whatever they do. They are not prepared. Uh, one young one fellow said as recently as a couple of years ago, I have a Google translator, some kind of assistant that you hold out in your hand that runs by battery. And my father asked him, are you going to be okay with that thing? Are you sure? He said, oh, yeah, this is state-of-the-art. This thing will never die. We saw him about 5 o'clock that morning just walking casually along to the wooded area. At 12 o'clock p.m., this same fellow came knocking on our door. He said, look, I, you got to help me, please. But he, this man was in such a, this, such a state of panic. He wasn't even able to tell us what he saw. He just said, I need a phone. I got to get the hell out of here. 
And we tried to talk to him and calm him down. He said, just give me a ride to the nearest bus station so I can get out of here. He was panic-stricken. We've seen a lot of him come and go. And my father just said, I knew he wasn't going to last because that GPS thing, it goes for it's. If you have a compass, that's one thing. But a GPS, if you have, your cell phone service is only going to get so far. When you go out to the remote wilderness, as I've been, you will not get any signal anywhere. For the one in Kansas, in, in Kansas, we're lucky we even got a signal out there. Because where we were was a completely remote. And the only way in, there was one road in and one road out. And... Once you went in, the same road you came in is the same road you, you, you went out on. God help you if one of these creatures came, pushed a tree down, or, or came out in the middle of the road as, he, as it did flocking the buses. If we'd have gone through it, they, they, we would have probably been gotten more than what we originally got. But I, we had to get out of there. And in and, and these kind of times, Tom and Mr. Will, you can't just... Have you don't have moments to to think, moments to spare. You have to think about getting the hell out of there and getting out of there now. Damn the equipment and whatever else you have, let it be. Your life is more important than trying to think of, oh, let me get a picture of it, or let me see what let me see what it looks like. I'm telling you, this is that's a, it's a scary situation I've been in. I've been in this is nine encounters that I've seen. And every encounter has gotten scarier than the next. They do not get any better. They just get worse as far as talking to someone. I've had folks tell me, well, why don't you talk to a, a shrink? No, that's out of the question. When you talk to regular common folk, they look at you as if you have two heads. And they'll, they will easily... Mis misinterpret whatever you say or brush it off because they haven't seen what you've seen. And I haven't just seen Bigfoot. I have seen things that are not Bigfoot, heard things that are not Bigfoot, like the supernatural, so to speak, or paranormal. That And those kind of things are very scary, too. And I'm not saying that every encounter is the same because it's not, but I tell you this, when you've had an encounter, whether you see one or not, it changes your life and it changes you forever. I still have nightmares over this. I got blamed because my cousin went got missing out there. I have to live with that every single day of my life, and that's not an easy thing to live with. And these things are just they're here. I don't know how I don't know how it's better to say it than that. They're here. We have to live with them. And Folks, if you're out there and you're feeding them, please don't. These creatures get vicious when you stop feeding them. And they can come into your house and attack your house. They can attack you. We had an incident up in up in Washington where I was sleepy that night. And I, my father told me to bolt the door because he had already gone to bed. I said, sure. I went to the door and called myself bolting it, but I didn't do it. I didn't do it properly. And about... 20 minutes later, everybody was all settled in the bed. We heard a loud howling noise that just seemed like somebody was in agony and severe pain We could, that you couldn't do anything to put them out of, even if you tried. This creature burst into the cabin, and that cabin was two floors. We were all up on the second floor in the bedrooms asleep. 
this creature burst into this ca- into this cabin. Everything downstairs was destroyed from a total mess. And my father grabbed his shotgun. He tried to, he was going down there to try to see what it was because he, by him being a military man and doing other th- various things and working on the railroads, he really was not afraid of anything or anyone. He shoots you as, as soon as he see you if he don't know what you're doing. And he said he went to the top, to the bottom of the last, the second to the last step. When he saw what was standing in that living room, he ran upstairs. Everybody get in the room now and be quiet. He put a blanket over all of us children so we wouldn't see if anything came in. He put his, himself against the door in case that thing tried to come up, come up there and try to get in the room or do whatever it does. And that thing did come upstairs, but he didn't hit, he didn't touch that room. He went to every other room in that upstairs and just destroyed it. And it looked when we came, when we all came to, it took us for hours. We didn't know if it was still down there being quiet. We had no idea what was going on. When we all, when we all did come out, my father said, let me go first. He went downstairs. It looked like a tornado blew through our house. And I'm telling you, that howling noise that creature made sounded like the freight, like the horn of a freight train. And by my father working on the railroads, he knew what that sound, what that sound sounded like. And he said it did. It looked like a tornado tore through the place. We had to completely remodel that, do that, and redo that entire cabin again. And it's redone now. But the only one that goes up there is my dad. Now he's the brave one. I cannot do it. And to see something like that in your home, invade the in privacy of your home, and get that close to you, closer than you being at a creek with your family member, and it stands right there. That's that's scariest. And uh, none to say the less, it was an uh, underwear changing moment for everyone. Because we didn't know what to expect. This thing was already down there. And it sounded like it was more than one. But we only heard, of, we, my father said he only saw one down there. And by the time any of us got down there to see it, it was gone. And it never came back after that until we started rebuilding. And once we fully rebuilt, we had we didn't hear as much noise, but we still heard the wood knocks. We still heard the woo whoops. And one time, we even got fooled by this creature because they're very good at mimicking sounds and hearing hearing sounds and noises. My father, when he wants to get our attention or call us in for dinner, he makes three whistling noise. I cannot do it. But he makes three distinct whistling noises that we all can hear. Doesn't matter where we are. And one night we heard that noise, but we heard it twice. And we said, oh, goody, dinner's on the table. We all troop back in the house. The adults are looking at us like, we didn't call you in. And my brother said, Dad, you just made, you just gave the signal. He said, son, no, I didn't. I've been in here, sitting here for the last 20 minutes. You all have 20 minutes left. I said, Dad, are you sure you didn't cause it? And he said, I'm, t- I'm positive. He said, you all, what did you hear? I said, Dad, we heard the same three whistles that you give us. We didn't hear nothing different. We heard it twice. He said, it was not me. And that's when he looked up and was like, I know what it was, but he didn't say anything. And I was the kind of child, I questioned my father. I said, Dad, 
what is that thing that I saw? He told me, never you mind, girl. Just let it go. Don't ask again. And my grandparents would tell us stories. Grandpa and grandma would sit us all down and tell us stories about the wood, the wood booger. She said, don't let the wood booger get you. Don't stay out there too late or they're going to get you. I, my brothers and sisters were scared. Silly me, I was scared but excited. I wanted to know more about this thing. But now, Tom and Will, that I am older, I sort of am glad that I had this experience. But then again, not really because it haunts me. And nobody knows how much it haunts me. This is an everyday thing to go to sleep and wake up at night with nightmares about this creature. I, I cannot tell you how hard it is. I can tell you that talking about it has helped me a little bit. But there are some people who have literally been hushed up by this thing or they can't talk about it, which is why I said, you know, some things I have to say are limited. But this thing has been out is out now. And I do understand that, you know, they do try to hide it. But, you know, they somebody ought to be knowing ought to be telling somebody about other people about this thing, because these creatures are dangerous. And I would not want anyone to go out and try to shoot any one of these creatures because my father took a shot at it when he would, when he uh, went to look for my cousin because he said he saw something out there. And he said it made the most god-awful ear-splitting howling noise that we heard from the cabin. And the, those men were deep out in those woods and we could hear it. And we would, also, we would hear the howls at night. If it wasn't the howls, the wood knocks and the whoops. But mainly it was the howls and the wood knocks. Every night, same time start, same time stop. And it was every day. It never let up. Even during the daytime, you would hear growls coming from the woods, but you'd never see anything. And I told my father, by us being their dad, we're, we are a bother to them. We're like something like Mr. Will, how you put it. Something's in your living room that shouldn't be there. It's going. They feel that way. They felt that way about us. We don't belong there. Get the hell out. That's what they're basically saying. Get out of our woods. And I have had several friends who have gone missing due to this creature. A um, friend of mine recently went to the Appalachian Trail a month ago. We have not heard from her. I cannot say it was a Bigfoot. I can't. I can't. I can't specify what exactly happened, but there are other things out there that's not Bigfoot, but you all are right. People do associate it with it. The first thing they hear, that's a Bigfoot. And I have been all around. I've seen Bobcat, Bear, Cougar, Panther, whatever it is that's out there, you name it, I've seen it. Koi, wolves, coyotes, and what have you. And the, 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 the sounds that this Sasquatch creature makes is nothing that I have ever heard before. It is well, listen, Janae, I got to agree with you on that. It, it definitely, um, it's, it's a very unique sound. That's for sure. There's nothing like it. Um, yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate you getting a hold of us. And um, I want you to stay in touch. And if you get any updates, let us know, okay? Oh, sure. Tom, may I say something for a second? Absolutely. Okay. Um, Tom and Will, first of all, gentlemen, thank you all so very much for giving me this opportunity. Chris and Buddy and everyone who's listening, I love you all. And folks, if you have an encounter, it may not, it may be worth a shot just to tell someone about it because keeping it bottled up makes it a lot harder. 
And folks, if you do like the content, please let Tom and Will know. Well, thank you, Janae. We really appreciate that. Yes, absolutely. And you're right. It's uh, it's good to kind of get it off your shoulders. So if um, yeah, if you got a story and you want to let us know, please do. And remember, we keep your ID confidential, your identity confidential. All right. Well, folks, um, stand by for the next segment and uh, we'll be right back. In Bigfoot history, Morristown, British Columbia, 1961. A couple who then lived four miles south of Morristown told Bob Pitmas that they watched from their breakfast table an eight-foot black hair-covered creature, very heavy, with a flat face, walk direct across the field across the highway. Later, they found 300 yards of five-toed tracks, 16 inches long, with flat feet sinking four to five inches deep in the field. The depth compared to human prints they termed awe-inspiring. Back from the break. Tom, what sort of questions do we have for folks today? Oh, we got some really good ones. We got uh, our first question today. This is from Janae, and she wants to know, are Sasquatch able to live in somewhat colder climates as long as there's game and food, or are they strictly adapted to living in the woods? Hmm. Well, I guess colder climates, I mean, that would include forested areas like Alaska. But certainly, yeah, they right. seem to prefer colder areas. Yeah, that that was that's what I told her. I said, Alaska, Russia, some pretty cold places, and they're found there. Well, and you think about it, you know, you go up in Alaska, you've got moose, you got elk, you got bear, oh, yeah, foxes, yeah. plenty wolves, of everything, plenty of wildlife. Oh yeah, so they can adapt. These creatures, uh, they can adapt. That's right. Well, and there's primates in, in all climates. Uh, you can your Japanese macaques are a, a prime example. They live in uh, uh, higher elevations in snow, and uh, you will even see them. They're the ones that you see a lot of times in the dead of winter. They'll be snoring around them, and they'll be in hot. They'll be sitting in hot springs, warming and bathing themselves. They love macaques. Love water, and there they are, right in the hot springs, uh, while it's snowing all around them. That'd be me well, being in a hot tub. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. They're in the hot tubs before we got them. Right. But for us, doesn't that kind of, it, it basically shows that not all primates' behavior is the same because we talked about this a while back. Gibbons, gibbons and howers hate water, right? Uh I don't think they have a very much of a proclivity for water, but uh, your macaques, absolutely, uh, whether they're in tropical areas or like the Japanese uh, macaques, they love water. I mean, they're in it all the time. So uh, I've never seen any other uh, primates that uh, uh, play and get in water like they do. Uh, some of your uh, uh Plebesis monkeys, those are the ones with the big noses. And uh, now they will get, they play in water a lot too. Um, but no, I've never seen gibbons or 
um, lemurs or any of those uh, type of primates in the I mean, it's just right. probably just like people. <laughs> some people like water and some people don't. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, Will, what evidence is there that Bigfoot has advanced tool use ability beyond the level of chimps and gorillas? That's a very good question. Because, And our, uh, our other friend, John, who's a forensic anthropologist, you know, one of the things he always says is that, that like other primates, they must have some form of tool use. As far as advanced tool use, um, see, that's the problem. We don't really see evidence of tool use, you know, I guess in terms of what people would think. Um, I mean, I don't know, Forrest, what sort of tool use do you think they might do? Well, you know, like with chimpanzees, they use, uh, they actually uh, will search out good straight sticks that they can use for termite mounds. Um, so I could see uh, possibly, you know, Bigfoot doing the same thing. Um, you know, you hear about them throwing rocks all the time, and nobody has ever actually given an account that I know of of them uh, actually dispatching an elk, a deer, or whatever with uh, with a rock. If they did that, then that would be that would also be a form of uh, tool use. Um, I don't, haven't ever heard of them, uh, uh, using rocks to break open bones to dispatch the marrow inside either. So, um, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I've never heard of any accounts of them using tools per se as what we do. Uh, I guess you could say that if they picked up a piece of wood and, knocked it up against a tree or if they chunked the rock at you that that might be a uh, primitive form of uh, tool use but uh, uh, actually you know devising a, a rock and forming it into a hand axe or something like that no I, I've never uh, and I've never heard of any other primates doing that kind of stuff but uh, now there's some there's some primates that uh, take um, and they're smart enough to, to use certain herbs and such as that to rub on their bodies, you know, because it prevents uh, insect uh, infestation. But, you know, that's not really tool use, but it's, it's a sign of intelligence. But I, I just never, I don't know. You, you would probably be more familiar with that type of I would. Uh, I would think, <laughs> yeah, I would think that for the most part, they probably don't need tools in the sense that we do because they're much more adapt to their environment than we are um, because of sheer strength and size. But uh, I would suspect that if they are using something in the form of tools, it's something that we wouldn't recognize. We would think it was just part of the normal background in the forest. Yeah, I would think so as well, you know. You know, we could put this to the test. We could, uh -oh. we could get a snap-on <laughs> or a craftsman truck and park it up and one of these Forest Service roads and leave it there and see if they rob it or not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they like vice the grips as much as the next road. guy. <laughs> well, Snap-on's pretty expensive, so they might they might like that one. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Are Bigfoot now? This is really an excellent question, and Adam actually asked this question about three, three and a half years ago, and it's it's worth 
revisiting are Bigfoot aware of their tracks and others evidence and other evidence they may leave that indicates their presence to humans do you think they deliberately try to hide them i think it's possible um i'll give you an example like with scat and we've talked about this before where you know when we we found the scat a lot of it in an area a few years back and it it was almost like it was intentionally done out in the open in the middle of roads and things and in in this one valley there was nothing and and it was like they were channeling and it's something that you know other animals are aware of their scat too especially predators because they'll defecate on roads to sort of mark those as their area and then when a bigger predator comes along it'll actually defecate on that predator's leavings you know to sort of say well this is my area now so you know if, if uh, lesser animals are cognizant of that then i'm sure they are too right and and the whole thing of of walking you know like you said they they'll defecate in water and they may travel through water to conceal their scent you know if they're in the hunt or something like that and that was something bob titmus mentioned to me that you know they were tracking in the bluff creek area when you're in the 60s and uh, the only place they found any scat was actually in the creek. It's almost as if it waited till it got in the middle of the creek and then did that. And I've heard that from other witnesses as well, where they saw the creatures defecating in bodies of water. Wow. And I hate to bring this up, but, um, you know, if you see their scat in the water, then you might assume that it's fairly recent because you think it would kind of break up rather quickly over time and don't drink the water it's the wrong it's the wrong kind of tea <laughs> oh yeah it's, it's it's just wrong to think about it <laughs> sorry it, it was a long day at work today so I, my brain is just kind of going there <laughs> but yeah, okay I, okay go ahead i'm sorry well no uh lisa Lisa wants to know, she says, I understand that lots of suspected Sasquatch hair and scat, scat samples have been turned over to labs over the course of years for analysis, but the results always come back as belonging to unknown primate, primate because you say there are no known specimens in the database to compare them to. Do you know if these labs have compared notes over the years to whittle down the unknown primate attributes of these multiple samples to find common attributes within the unknown to maybe find enough commonality without the need of a living or dead specimen i think that's a very valid question it's a really well thought out question it is but there's number one there was only one test that i'm aware of where it came back unknown primate and that's the one we talked about the police officer who collected a blood sample off the kid's bike and that was the wrong test. He wasn't supposed to do that one. But uh, as far as labs talking to each other, not that I'm aware of, no. And, and you know, things have been brought in, but you got to remember, too, those tests are very expensive. And the average person out there who goes out and finds something they think is from a Bigfoot, you know, is not likely to take, you know, $40,000 and go have a test run on it. Well, as far as I know... Uh, y'all are aware that there is a um, geneticist here in Texas. In fact, 
at one point in time, uh, a famous animal geneticist that was uh, used by the state of Texas and a lot of very famous murder trials and et cetera. And because of um, that person's involvement in testing DNA, whether it be accurate or not, I don't know. Um, can't speak to that because I'm not a geneticist. That person is no longer um, used by the state of Texas and actually um, has fallen into ridicule. So I think that the fact that there may be some geneticists out there that may secretly, if they had the opportunity to discuss and analyze that might be done, and I say might because we don't know. It's not talked about openly, and I'm not even sure that until some uh, land-breaking uh, event occurs that it is going to be uh, openly talked about. No, uh, I don't think so either. No. What do we have next, Tom? Okay, and this actually sort of uh, kind of dovetails into that, into what, Forrest, what you were just talking about a moment ago. And I want to say that uh, I, I'm very respectful to everybody's questions that they send to us. These are honest questions. These are questions that, you know, where are you going to go for answers? So <clears throat> I'm just going to preface, preface this by saying, you know, we really appreciate the questions. We're re very re respectful respectful spit that one out today um, of the people of our audience who sends us these questions this is one that we've all heard I've certainly heard it on the internet over and over again and um, I don't know the answer to it but I'm going to ask this uh, this person wants to know he says I've heard reports on the show about drivers or hunters who report a Bigfoot body which is sub subsequently recovered by a government agency only to be never reported again. Uh, when the people involved uh, find the follow-up, the agency denies any knowledge of the event. And Will, you've actually, I'm gonna ask you to comment on that because you do have a similar occurrence with that, with the footprints and the, you know, the misty, the uh, watering truck and everything. So are you familiar with this? familiar with this do you know anyone who this has happened to well not dead bodies i mean that's i have no of no cases like that uh other situations i'll give you two examples and nobody knows who these people were but here's here's the stories this was back in the would have been the mid 1990s um <clears throat> there were a couple of old timers that were out scouting a hunting area uh, south of Mount Adams in Washington State, and they, uh, in, in their retirement, they made Bajas out of old VW Bugs, and they would go to gated off areas, they would drive, you know, the Baja across country to circumnavigate the gates, and then that's where they would hunt. Yeah, apparently, they did that for many years before the gates were there, so they felt that was their right to hunt those areas, but they went and they found a, a whole long line of juvenile bigfoot tracks and very small ones apparently a couple miles worth of tracks so they came uh one of the gentleman's sons 
worked with me so they knew who I was. Uh, they called me, they came, I took the day off or the rest of the day off and went with them. So it was kind of a long trip, but what happened before they found the tracks, I guess I should have backed up a little bit. Um, they, before entering the area, they met this young guy with the water truck and, uh, he was trimming, thinning out some of the smaller trees. It was a summer job for the forest service and, uh, they chatted a bit and then, they got in their vehicle and, and took off across the country, found the tracks, came back out, and they, they didn't really know what they were, but they, they kind of had a hunch what they were. I mean, obviously, they weren't bear tracks. Um, so they it took about two hours to get to me and then another two hours back to the area. So about five hours ensued between the time of the track. They found the track and the time we got there. On their way out... They said they, they met this guy who was in Forest Service uniform with what looked like a Forest Service truck, and they chatted a bit. They told him they found these footprints, miles of them, and the guy in the Forest Service uniform said, oh, I'm going to grab, or he grabbed a camera. They said what well, looked like an expensive camera, and he said, I'm going to go take some pictures. He says, uh, handed him a business card, said, you know, call me in a couple weeks, and you can have copies of the pictures. So by the time we got there, uh, there was no sign of the water truck, no sign of the forest service truck. Nobody was there. We drove. Now they had marked, they tied a, a rag around the tree. So at the at the beginning where they first found the line of tracks. So we drove there, we found the rag, and we proceeded to look for the tracks. Well, there was no tracks. In fact, no tracks of anything. That, that soil on the road was really powdery like flour. And before we got to that spot there were tracks animal tracks everywhere in that stuff in fact i i took some photographs of some really great bear tracks in that material and there was like i said every other kind of animal tracks in that stuff so we couldn't figure out where the tracks went and these two were very believable well they weren't making this up going that far out of their way to come and get me and, and go back out there so i got looking at the ground and the ground had been misted uh, some of those water trucks have a feature where they can they can mist. You use them in forest fight, fighting forest fire. I saw them when I fought fire years ago, and uh, I thought, well, I said, no, isn't that interesting? That's how they they wiped all the tracks out, every track that was available, you know. So I said, well, you know, call this supervisor or whoever he is, you know, it's, I think he identified himself as a supervisor. I'd call him in a couple of weeks see if he's got pictures. So when they called, uh, they told me later that the people in the office said that no such person existed. Uh, so no pictures, no tracks, nothing. And not, it was the same summer. We went up by Mount St. Helens on the south side. There was a place called Eagle's Cliff up there, campground and store. And before you get to that, there's a ranger station. Actually, there's a facility there where they do uh, a number of things for that area. So... I knew, I knew the couple who lived on site and did their, their guard. They guarded their equipment and, and facilities. And uh, I asked them, I said, well, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. We drove up to Eagles Cliff Store this one day. And it was custom my custom to stop by our businesses and talk to the people and see if they'd heard anything. And, and they told me that, yes, that morning that one of the local residents had found a bunch of tracks by this creek. 
and there was also a Forest Service biologist that was going up there to look at the tracks. So they said, well, if you hurry up and go up there, there, it should be up there right now. They just left here maybe a half hour ago. So I had my team. We went up to this creek. I knew the place real well. We got out, searched, went both directions. We split up. No tracks, nothing. No Forest Service person, nothing up there. So we went down to my friends who guarded the Forest Service equipment, and I asked them to explain the situation and asked them if maybe we could talk to this Forest Service biologist. So he called up the main office, and they said, well, there was there was no Forest Service biologist there. You know, anybody that would come in from out of the area would have to check in with them first, and there was nobody there. So two situations, people in Forest Service uniforms claiming they were Forest Service employees, footprints involved, footprints disappeared, um, and then both parties were said by the local Forest Service offices not to exist. So I guess, you know, take it for what it is. Well, how long ago was that last one? They were both just... they were both in the mid nineties, same summer. Okay, because it it seems like there's a warming up or a softening of that attitude. Actually, a lot, because uh, you and I both know that you know I've I've talked to, and so have you, multiple Forest Service employees, Rangers, and field personnel who all say, yeah, 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 they're they're out there. I've seen them. Uh, they'll tell you where, yeah, I've seen them over at this location. Oh, I've never had trouble seem... with Forest Service people, but these people were at least pretending to be Forest Service people, but weren't. So the question is, who were they? Okay, yeah, well, very good point. Because the local Forest Service people in both locations said they were, you know, very forthcoming, you know, when asked, and they said, no, we don't know who these people are. Well, very interesting. Now we have a few more of those types of questions. I'll, you know, I'm just going through these chronologically okay, here. Sure. So, uh, well, again, can folks. I, can I interject something before you go any further there, Tom? Sure. Absolutely. You, you remember that uh, what I see, and this is not a, in, the, in relationship to tracks, but uh, I kind of thought that maybe this might figure into this. But you remember back a while ago that I sent you the picture that was sent to me of the the tractor trailer rig that was wrecked on the side of the road and it was quite obvious that uh, there was a large animal underneath the wreckage of this truck and um you know the unfortunate thing is that there's a lot of stuff like that that comes in that is <clears throat> also unidentifiable and people will say well i saw this and i took a picture of it but then when it comes down to it uh well maybe they did Maybe it is for real, but you, then you never have anybody that that that's in an official capacity that wants to admit, yes, this is what happened, um, and this is you know what we have. And uh, I mean, I fail to understand it, but I think it's kind of like the UFO uh, situation as well. And now, <laughs> all of a sudden, just we have the government. And the Department of Defense are all of a sudden admitting that, oh, yes, UFOs exist. They always have existed. But yet there's no excuse for their lies in the past. So I think we have a similar situation with uh, Bigfoot as well. You know, with the um, – because we 
you see those from time to time, you know, the, the tractor trailer, you know, hit something big and furry, uh, all these sorts of pictures. And all I can say is the most basic of basic journalistic tactics is get a date and time location, you know, get, get some verifiable um, data to go with it. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's it. I hit the button. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, Danny from the Southern Sierra wants to know, uh, Will, I'm going to shoot this one your way. He says on episode 11 at 54 minutes, 44 seconds, there are some scratch marks on a tree I assume to be from a bear. He says it reminds me of a woman whose dad uh, told her that Bigfoot will sometimes leave marks like that on trees. What are there? Any comments? Well, episode 11 was a long time ago, uh, but I'm pretty sure what we were talking about was probably something that, that I found and I think you've seen a couple of times. It's not something you find very often. It's, it's pretty rare, actually, where sometimes creatures will pull the bark off a tree and then you'll see fingernail markings where they it's like they're scraping that uh Precambrian layer for something. Mm -hmm. I've, I've actually got a couple of pictures of it, or a picture, uh, I think, I don't know, one or two pictures of it in my first book, Notes from the Field, where uh, my buddy Jack and I were uh, up in the northern part of California here and uh, quite a ways out in the middle of nowhere and found this tree. And it was a pretty big chunk of uh, bark that was torn off. It was probably. Oh, geez, a foot long, a foot wide, and maybe a foot and a half, two feet long up and down the tree. It was just peeled off, and there was no sign of it how it was peeled off. It was just ripped off. And then it was just covered in these um, quarter-inch wide fingernail markings. They were they were made by almost like a human-like or a primate-like nail. They weren't claws. And that is a key factor for Will um, you know the pictures that I sent you that Kurt and I found, I should say, Kurt did mm -hmm. the heavy lifting on that one for right. sure. Mm -hmm. So we were out in the area, and we had found those the peeled back bark that you, I, and you know the rest of the group saw. Mm -hmm. And that was obviously from a large primate, very high up. And then we're driving along, and this is you know a few months before you guys showed up. Kurt pointed out a tree off in the distance out in the field. So that tree there is dead. Yeah, it's dead. And it's dead because of a black bear. Yeah. Interesting. I hadn't heard that before. So we go over there and sure enough, um, claw marks, mm -hmm. not fingernail marks. Claw marks and black bears will go through and, and mark their territory by tearing up. Unfortunately, the tree suffers because it dies. But you can definitely, there's a very, very distinct uh, difference. You know, it's about four feet off the ground, maybe five. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're a you know, very sharp claw, not quarter-inch uh, fingernail. Yeah, bones. bear will tear a tree up. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious when a bear does it. This marking was not. It was absolutely not a bear. It was just, like I said, that, that chunk of bark. And if anybody wants to see the picture, it's in my book, Notes from the Field. Um and it's very clear what what did this, or in my opinion, what did it. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, here's another one. 
how much interbreeding do you think happens uh, within groups? Do you think when people have reported, so there's two questions here. So the first one is, number one, do we think there's any interbreeding going on within the groups? And then number two, uh, when people have reported sounds like a woman screaming, uh, do you think it could be a big feel, uh, a Bigfoot female giving birth? Um, you want to take that one on, Forrest? <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, <laughs> well, I'll address the last one first. Um, a primate, I've never seen um, a primate scream when they were giving birth. I, um, um, some low moaning, yes, maybe, but no screams. Uh, I think women are the only ones that uh, uh, do that. Um, in fact, I have, I'll have to uh, do a sidebar here. I laughed when I, I was giving birth to my son. There was a woman in the labor room and delivery next to me that was literally screaming. And I finally told the nurse, I said, if you don't go in there and tell her to shut up, I'm going to go in there and tell her to shut up. <laughs> so. You know, I, I got to so, say that real, anyway. I got to say that really big scat that they leave. Now that could be responsible. <laughs> Yeah. I want to well, scream just okay. looking at it. <laughs> I'm not touching that one. <laughs> um, what was the first part of the question again? <laughs> I, I, I knew we were going to get <laughs> off track here. <laughs> right? Okay. How much how much interbreeding do you think happens within groups? Oh, okay. You know what? I don't. I, I think probably uh, little to none because um, if we all accept the fact that they're a primate, that uh, primates, uh, apes, monkeys, and all of them, uh, when males become uh, a breeding age, the alpha males will drive them out of the group. Um, the I have never heard of an incident, and that's not to say that it hasn't happened, um, of a uh, female allowing her offspring to breed her. Um, so they, I think are very, they're intelligent enough to be cognizant of the fact that this is a related, another related primate and they're not going to breed with them. Um, so, you know, I just don't think that it occurs very often. Like I say, they drive the males off, uh, the females in a lot of groups, um, will stay close to their mother up to a point. And then uh, they they kind of form this sisterhood, uh, the sisters and the daughters and such as that. But uh, the daughters at some point will actually go off and they can be part of a troop and they will actually go off and find another male to mate with rather than with their father. And um, most generally, uh, I'm not going to say that this does not occur because uh, you do have males that will kill babies that don't necessarily belong to them, but it is not as frequent as what you find in some other uh, species of mammals that uh, form groups and prides. Everybody knows about the lions. If a um, male lion takes over a pride, that they will go through and try to kill off all the offspring off, uh, so that that way the the female will come back into estrus and they can breed them. Um, it will occur sometimes in primates where you have. Uh, you know, second males that aren't alphas that are out there 
and they will come in, snatch a baby, and then kill it in hopes that that female will come in. But it's just not as uh, readily done as it is in other mammals. You know, there is an example with a story in this subject about these creatures that that leans pretty heavily in that direction. Um, the, the Glenn Thomas story from 1967, the logger that watched the three creatures, the male, the female, and the very young juvenile. And at one point he mentions in the story how at all times the female kept her body between the juvenile and the male. Well, that would be understandable, yeah. Right. Now, they do, and I, I will say this, I have seen an instance where uh, gibbons and um, um, these Lampur gibbons that uh, were in India where a male um, came through, and this was actually the first time I'd ever seen this type of uh, uh, rampage done. And I was not aware of it until I'd actually seen it on film. And, and, and the person that was taking the film footage was actually a little bit shocked. This male went through and he was killing, um, he was killing um, infants and uh, older, uh, like year-old and two-year-old uh, monkeys out there. And I don't know what the sex of those monkeys were. It's entirely possible they might have all been males. And he was just going through and making sure that he got rid of all the the young males in the group that might uh, prevent or present a uh, problem for him at a later date. That's, that's entirely possible. But uh, these, these females, females were just grabbing up their babies and running for the high ground, you know? Uh, so they obviously recognized a danger immediately with this uh, new, new male taking over. And I mean, I have heard of incidences and I, I think I, I, I told this before about the chimpanzee male that, uh, that females most generally when they have their babies will go off to have them. And then they come back with this one young female that evidently had not had uh, this probably was her first birth. She actually gave birth within uh, uh, eyesight of uh, <clears throat> the males in the group. And I don't know what the, the standing of this particular male was in the troop. So I can't speak to that, but this male actually, as soon as she delivered that infant, that male went over there and snatched that infant from her. And the baby wasn't even dry from her licking it yet and literally uh, took that baby off, killed it, and then sat there in front of all the other uh, uh, monkeys and chimps and ate that baby, which was just, now see this uh, uh, Gibbon, he did not, he wasn't eating or any, doing anything like that. He was just going through on, on a rampage and killing, 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 killing. And for us, that's obviously, I mean, it's, unusual that's not normal behavior well i i had never heard of it happening before on that level and and like i said this uh person that was taking the film footage was actually you could actually hear him making audible gasp i mean they they just really were saying it felt like they were seeing something that had never happened before so uh, i'm not familiar enough with those particular monkeys to know whether they do that on a daily basis or or even when uh, there's a, a command and the the uh, change of command in a troop but you know maybe it's possible i mean i'm not going to claim that i know everything about every particular monkey type out there because i certainly don't but uh it i mean it was horrifying to watch uh, I really, I felt sorry for those poor mothers and, uh, but they, the ones that had little bitty babies, they just grabbed onto those things and those little babies were just as close as they could be to their mamas and, and those mamas were running for high ground. 
And uh, so, but I, I have seen one thing in, in macaques where, and it may be a learned behavior. Uh, and so I, I don't really know if this is a common behavior, but uh, I've seen male macaques will kidnap. It's not, it's pretty unusual for males to kidnap. It's usually the, the females that do it. But there's this one male that will kidnap his own babies. Now, he's never harmed them, but he will absolutely drag these babies around. And a lot of it, I think, is a learned behavior because these uh, videographers that are out there will keep giving him food in hopes that he'll let go of the baby, you know. But he he obviously has... Uh, four good appendages and he can be grabbing the food with both of his hands and he'll be holding on to that baby's tail with one of his feet. But I mean, I had actually watched that female come up and do a submissive posture and raise her tail like they do and then crouch in hopes, you know, like she was offering herself in a, to a, in a breeding position. So give me back my baby. You can breed me. Just give me my baby. That was, that was really the, and I mean, she obviously thought this, thought this through so it was like i'll let him i'll i don't know whether she she didn't act like she was an estrus she act, actually was acting like she knew that maybe if uh, she did that then maybe he would give her her baby back and eventually he actually did you know will that you talked about a uh, a video you saw where there was a a very brutal and abusive leader of a group i think it was um uh baboons it was baboons yeah yeah and all the others and when he got when he went into harm's way and he didn't realize it he was near the crocodile they all just kind of looked the other way they did they (laughs) pretend like nothing was going on so he would get eaten and he did (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. baboons are those in fact are another (laughs) yeah no uh and and the baboons are kind of hard to to really, really like. <laughs> They're pretty brutal. Well, it was interesting that, you know, the rest of the, I guess the, the, the gist of it was the normal behavior would be to alert if, if one of the members, group members, is in danger. Yeah, it was sort this of one, a, they're like, yeah, it was sort of a group think that this guy's got to go. Because <laughs> 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 he, he, he had terrorized all the group except for his hand picked favorites i mean it really it was really bad to the rest of them and then you know when the leopard or whatever got him it was like well they, they were looking like you know. <laughs> <laughs> they all saw the danger except him well you know it's kind of funny we all laugh but uh aren't those kind of human traits too very much so sure oh yeah sure. <laughs> They're all thinking it couldn't have happened to a better baboon. And, and, yeah, I, and I would suppose yeah. I would suppose the Sasquatch. Really, a nicer guy. Yeah, I would suppose our creatures probably share a lot of these similar kinds of things. Well, now we know what the screaming it. is. As I said before, a primate is a primate is a primate. You know, I don't care what size they are. All right, got another question. This is from Vicky. And Vicky says, uh, hey, Will, Tom, and, and Forrest, I was watching a YouTube video. Uh, again, we're getting into the government thing here that was addressing what the government knows about the national parks missing persons. And she says this was not from 
a very popular person who has a lot of videos, not from that guy. And and it said if they're covering up predation by Bigfoot, quite often they deny that they have unsolved missing persons missing person cases. Is it possible that they know Bigfoot's responsible and are they trying to discourage further investigation into disappearances? What are the percentage of missing persons that you think are Bigfoot related? Sasquatch related. Oh, I have no idea, but those cases would be in in uh, law enforcement jurisdiction. It's not those aren't federal things, those would be law enforcement. Yeah, and whatever the reason they're doing it is well, perhaps known. They don't talk yeah. about law enforcement doesn't talk about open cases while they're investigating. I mean, that's that's any any kind of investigation, whether it's missing person or whatever, there's a crime or whatever, because they don't know. So those ca- if those cases are open, they won't talk about them. It's good yeah, and as long as well, as long as they're open cases, they're not going to release information on them. Right, period. Right. I mean, you can't. You're not going to be able to get into files for autopsies or anything else, for that matter. So a lot of so, a lot of conspiracy people are thinking Bigfoot. Well, you know, law enforcement handles all those. It's not Forest Service. It's not Feds. It's it's local law enforcement or state law enforcement. Okay. Next question. Uh, this one is the truly dangerous issues Forrest is having at her home with Bigfoot trying to get in the house, pulling out air conditioners, damaging property, raises a question. Pulling out an air conditioner is scary stuff. That should be on the local news and not hushed up. I hope Forrest has a 30 odd six rifle at hand, well loaded for these occasions. How <laughs> <laughs> if they know what I have? <laughs> right. <laughs> now you know who's peeking in the window. <laughs> right. <laughs> Are we sure that was a Bigfoot? No. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, and not only the fact that they pulled were messing with the air conditioner, but the the fact that one actually came in the cabin after that. So, um, you know, I guess I could say I, if they wanted me, they could have had me. Um, but you know, how do you how do you address something like that with the with law enforcement? Okay, I think we've kind of discussed this briefly before when I had to I saw the two individuals down by the barn and I had to call the sheriff's department out and I and Tom and you and I both talked about this the next day I think it was uh, should I should I should I tell this gentleman you know what the dangers are down there and I never said a word and. Um, and I guess I would have felt horrible if something had happened to him, but uh, then I would have had law enforcement all over the place. So, um, but you know, I'm not going to be the one to call him up and tell him, Hey, I had a Bigfoot that I think was about seven and a half to eight feet tall out here messing with my air conditioner. You know, I don't want to be the old lady that, uh, they all claim to be a total nutcase out there, you know? And, and we see that way too often with people that do go to law enforcement, and then everybody thinks you're crazy, you know? Well, here's the other... I mean, that's the way they address it. It is, and here's the other part of that. When when the question addressed uh, that it should be on the 6 o'clock news or, or whatever, okay, if you're going to call a reporter, why? <laughs> you know, I mean, think, folks, think about that. I mean... Would you want to call some reporter and say, okay, Bigfoot's messing with my air conditioner, and then everybody thinks you're nuts, not just law enforcement, but everybody. Yeah. 
and you've embarrassed your children and everything else and 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 uh you're standing in the community and you know no i can i fully understand and fully sympathize with people but yeah i i have a 30 out six and i have a 410 and (laughs) i'm fully prepared to use them if i have to uh i would prefer not to but uh I'm not even sure that a 30 out 6 would take that sucker down, to be honest with you. I mean, it'd have to be a very well-placed headshot. So uh, I don't think that uh, knowing the uh, muscle uh, structure of most of your great apes and uh, as in comparison to humans, uh, the density is just so much greater than us. I'm not even sure a 30 out 6 would take one down if I uh, was to hit it in the chest or a heart area. You know, and my 22 would just be a pea shooter. Right. But you also brought up a, a good point. It's a dilemma. Uh, letting law enforcement know, man, you know, you, you don't want you don't want to put them in a really dangerous situation. But on the other hand, you need somebody to respond. Well, here's um, another facet to it, too. Let's say you have a good friend that's a police officer and you call that friend when you have an encounter. What are they supposed to do about it? Well, and here's taking that a step further. Let's say that tomorrow it comes out. It's a full disclosure. Bigfoot exists. Um, what infrastructure exists within local, state, and federal law enforcement to deal with this? Because I, I am pretty sure that if a uh, legitimate, if a credible Bigfoot uh, encounter was called in, I've got this thing on my property i mean are deputies qualified or, or the well, local police qualified yeah, to come out and deal a, with this that, that's Probably, a that's you know. a what if but let's let's take it at where the step where we are right now um you know you call somebody like i said if your friend what are they what are they supposed to do about it because then they've got to talk to their superiors and try to explain this so they're putting themselves in the shoes that you would have been in right so it's a toughie um okay so this this person goes on they say so what should be done if you find a bigfoot not just coming around your home but actively trying to get in in your house um and i would say maybe upgrade from a 30 odd six to a barrett 50 i don't know well, you, you don't then there's you, the other ones you got to worry about well you, you don't want to go shooting at one because that really ticks them off uh the we talked about these things before the first thing you do is cut the brush back away from your house at least 50 feet. They don't like crossing open areas. You need motion sensor lights, things like that. Well, and you see, that's what I've been working on doing. So, you know, um, here of late, I haven't had any issues. The only issue, well, the latest one was that issue with Sherry. You know, and that was a daytime uh, situation, and that was very surprising to all of us. So um, I hope that that does not occur again. Um, and I'm hoping that maybe with the weather getting really, really hot, that maybe it's, uh, we have it, we've had a very extremely high temperatures around here for this top, time of the year. I mean, already over 100, and it's remaining uh, in the high 90s all the time. So that's very unusual for us this time of the year. And we usually don't get that kind of weather till August. So I'm hoping that they've maybe moved to cooler climates. But see, we have a resident uh, deer population. I can talk population around here all the time and I can go out into my pasture at any point in time with a spotlight and just see probably 20, 30 deer out there. So, um, 
they got plenty to eat around here. Well, that would keep them in the area then. Well, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, but I haven't. They're not bothering me. So if they want, they they can have all the deer they want. But as long as they don't bother me, that's just fine. You, you know, it gets me. There's all these people that say, "Oh, I'd love to love to have an encounter." Uh, talk to the people that have had encounters, and, and then see if you really want to have one after that. <laughs> it's it's not what you think it is. Well, that encounter I had, like I say, north of Coeur d'Alene in Idaho that time uh, when I was headed into Canada, uh, that was the perfect encounter. That was the perfect encounter. I wouldn't mind having encounters like that all the time. But, uh, you know, coming up to my window and trying to get in my house and all that, uh uh-uh. No, thank you. Yeah. That that encounter (laughs) type I don't like. The, the The really good encounters are kind of few and far between. I had one myself, but... uh. You know, you don't get to choose the kind of encounter you end up having. Well, like I always say, I didn't find Bigfoot. Bigfoot found me. <laughs> what else do we have, Tom? All right. Um, <clears throat> so we've got Bigfoot seems to be an open secret in a lot of federal agencies like the Park Service. As in, no way we deny the existence of this creature. And yes, we've been having a lot of problems. Uh, we're looking into it. And I got to say real quick, I'm going to comment on one of the national parks here in Oregon. They uh, kind of tongue in cheek acknowledge its existence. You know, they've got a big stuffed, uh, well, more, you know, like a teddy bear type eight foot Bigfoot in one of the uh, gift shops. And, you know, it's got a big smile on its face. So they, you know, and they said that uh, basically it was in uh, kind of in response to all the uh, sightings. So, um, so going on with this question here, there's lots of people who know Bigfoot exists, including, as you report, many conservation officers, police, and other, uh, you know, government agencies. And again, this this goes back to why the official denials and cover-ups. I think a lot of people want to know that. Um, why are they hostile to official discovery? So they don't. I'm just going to say that these these law enforcement agencies will, as far as I know, they don't check in with us first, do they? No, and it's it's not it's not that they're hostile to it. Um, you have to understand, especially government agencies, and I think state also. Um, you know, they have their their policies and their things that they they're required to go by, and uh, this is a subject that's just not something that's a policy matter that they're held to. And it's not even proven to be real. So, um, you know, unless they got one coming up and grabbing them, you know, by the arm, you know, they, they don't, number one, have the time to, to deal with something like that or the resources. Um, and it depends on, you know, yeah, sure, sure, certain individuals might have an interest and may have seen something, and, and we've talked to people that have, uh, but that's not, it's outside the scope of their official duty. So, you know, and... You know, talking about it, in fact, I, I'm thinking one, one Forest Service employee that we know had an encounter, uh, but can't talk about it openly because um, it could cause problems for their job. So, you know, and not, not that it's something, you know, because they're looking looked down on for the subject. It's just something that, um, it's like, like military people talking about out public about things they're not supposed to. You know, it's a kind of along those lines. It's if it's outside the scope of their job, they can't talk. 
publicly about it because they're representing that particular uh, branch of government. Right. And I, I would say most, if not all, federal agencies, and this probably holds true for, I'm sure, state and local, if if those type of questions come up, they have to run it through public affairs office, and, and they handle those. And, and their supervisors. I mean, you know, each supervisor's got, you know, their tasks that they're responsible for and their, and their scope of their authority, and and this, this subject is just something that they don't have time for. Okay, next question. I think that's all we have for today. Uh, I want to thank everybody for sending in some very excellent questions, even the ones that are, uh, you know, we, we got a lot of people asking these government questions uh, this week, which is perfectly fine. Uh, we respectfully, uh, you know, we, we, we appreciate all questions. So ask away. Send us your questions to questions at creekdevil.com. And the only dumb question is the one that you don't ask. You know, we should probably take a look at uh, comments because we haven't addressed comments as often as we should. Let me take a quick look here. Let's see. Oops, I didn't want to do that. All right. Let me go here real quickly. We always forget to go through, you know, comments people make to us, you know, that are um, sometimes in the form of questions also. Okay, that's being slow here. Here we go. Uh, oh, Susan Rankin, who was on, says, it has to be startling to look upon the face of a Sasquatch, then try to remember what you saw. Um, yeah, I mean... One of the things, you know, when it comes to something that has a, a big shock, either you remember it in fine detail or it shocks your system to the point where you don't remember much of anything. Well, that's true. Most, a lot of uh, uh, people that witness crimes and such, they can either remember it in absolute perfect detail or they, <laughs> the mind just completely blocks it out. It's like, and my mind's eye, I can still see that figure standing at the window. Oh, yeah. And, and, yeah. and you know, and my, and my mind's eye, I, you know, the only thing I wish that the head hadn't been so far up above in that window that I could have could have actually seen it. <clears throat> but it turned so quickly to uh, walk away after I beat on the wall. Um, but uh, I can still just, I can close my eyes right now and see that chest and, uh, the shoulders and such and it's just you know it's 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 a frightening proposition i'll tell you that you know it is i mean that's something that again going back to what you know people say that you see it often that where people um they want to see a one i understand people wanting to see one because that kind of puts them over the edge of you know firmly believing they're real or or it's kind of on the fence but when you actually see one, especially if it's close up, um, that's a that's a level of fear that um, I, I don't even know how to describe that. It's it's beyond what most people can comprehend unless you actually experience it. Well, let me tell you what: all the education in the world won't get you out of that one. Yeah, that's for sure. I can, I, <laughs> I can sit and identify pieces and parts and all that sort of stuff, but I, I, <clears throat> that, that just is like it, it 
steps it up to a whole another dimension. It does, and we've had a number of people on the show who are combat vets, and every one of them said the same thing, that their experience in combat paled by comparison with encountering one of these creatures. And uh, and partly I think it's because, and I, I think I mentioned it to a couple of the guys, um, you know, if you're, you you come across another an enemy combatant, you're, you're, it's not in your mind that that person's going to eat you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and with this creature, I, I hate to say it, but it does kind of enter into your mind, at least at some level. Well, yeah. <laughs> Tom, what do you and think? And that's why... <laughs> no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that there's that there's a sense of vulnerability if you're if you're outdoors with this creature. Um, you're in the woods; it's in the woods. You're in its backyard, and again, even if you have a fairly high-powered rifle, uh, you you still get a sense of what is this thing? It's on two legs. It's different. It's different than anything else out there. That's a very good point. And the point. feeling is very different. Yeah. Well, most of the comments, folks, are um, they're coming on, commenting on the different shows, just small particulars, but a lot of times you go through here and... Um, <clears throat> oh, Pete Mitchell, I wonder, because he, he, he always asks about Chris from Tennessee. Chris from Tennessee has been very ill he had some major surgery, and, and he's been sick, so that's why we haven't had him on the show. And I just want to say we wish him the best. Chris is a great guy. He is. And, uh, yeah, so, Chris, if you're listening, uh, get well, buddy, and hope you're doing hope you're doing good. Uh, well, I was going to say something. I saw, I saw in the comments once uh, been a couple of shows back, <clears throat> that excuse me that some guy kept and i don't remember what his name was and uh he kept saying that that we were referring to um bigfoot as an ape constantly rather than a human uh, uh a human form and um i know i do and um <clears throat> i actually re- uh answered his uh, his comment because um and I, I told him that I welcomed him to certainly ask questions in regards to that. But I was just going to say this, that my feelings on the fact that, that I think that it's just just an advanced form of ape with a, a bipedal ape at that, um, because uh, it does not have culture. And as far as I know, it doesn't have language. Yes, they, I've heard the gibberish. Uh, we've discussed that. I've heard that. But until... Somebody can prove to me that that's actually a language with syntax and, and uh, um, complete meaning. I mean, sure, it had those sounds and noises and gibberish has meaning to them. Certainly doesn't to us. But <clears throat> excuse me, um, you've got to have and you've got to have culture and uh, just forming a troop and having a hierarchy within a troop does not necessarily necessarily equate with culture and so that's that's where i'm coming from i as far as i'm concerned they're just a bipedal ape um somebody proves that they actually have a a language and a culture then you know i'm 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 all willing to accept that fact and and go forward 
And there's another part to that too. Um, you know, we <laughs> we compare other primate species, and, and in particular, different kinds of behaviors. In other words, we'll get a big we'll get a Bigfoot story, and there are certain behaviors that are discussed that were seen during that encounter. And more often than not, there are other primate species who exhibit the same behaviors. So it's exactly. it's well within the realm of discussion to make the comparisons. You know, all, all primates, even your lower forms, do things that will look human-like. Uh, <laughs> I've seen monkeys have expressions on their faces that are so human that you just, you know, you just think, oh my goodness, that's just, that's the same thing that my kid was doing, you know? <laughs> I knew that every little monkey. Uh, but anyway, um, but you know what I'm saying. And there's just expressions that they do, their movements and everything else that are going to always appear. Well, we're all primates. We all come out of the same, you know, order. Mm-hmm. And um, so I know there's a lot of people that would, you know, disagree that, that man is not a primate but you know i'm sorry you know as far as i'm concerned they are but and i respect those people don't get me wrong i respect them that that they want to not feel that way but um the thing is that uh, i will interject this that the theory of darwinism is that man evolved from a common man and apes all they evolved from a common ancestor Darwin never said that we evolved from apes. That's correct, so, yes. Um, <laughs> and, and that is where, in fact, some people get way distracted with that. So, um, anyway, uh, onward and upward. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you, uh, all primates share common characteristics. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's, and again, it's, it's worth making the comparisons because it can give us a little better idea about what a Sasquatch may or may not be doing. Exactly. Or what they might might start doing. Exactly, yeah. Sometimes you have, you can do that, and by making those comparisons, you can make reasonable predictions based on that. And, of course, if they pan out, then you're on to something. If not, you move on to something else. Yeah, you're right. Well, we're just about out of time. Um... Uh, Forest, Tom, you guys have any final thoughts or comments? Well, I want to thank everybody for. Yeah, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in and excellent questions. Well, we thank you for those. Send them to questions at creekdevil.com. If you like the show, let us know. Click the like and subscribe. And if you want to support the show, you can do so. We've got a link in the description for Patreon. Forrest, do you have any final thoughts? No, sir. I don't think so. All right, everyone. Well, everybody, stay tuned for the next segment, and we'll pick this up again next week. In Bigfoot history, Strawberry, near Angels Camp, Northern California, March 1963. Mrs. Linda Campbell... Aloha, Oregon, phoned me on an open radio line show in Portland to say that on their honeymoon at Jack and Jill Ski Lodge, she and her new husband saw an eight to nine foot upright shaggy creature while they were on a hike. It ran off on its hind legs, they told the lodge owners, who said they had seen the same animal previously. (laughs) 
This story, about 40 minutes long, is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The title of the story, The Hairy Giants of British Columbia, told by J.W. Burns, Government Indian Agent Teacher, Chehalis Indian Reserve, British Columbia, and set down by Mr. C. V. Tench, illustrated by T. T. Muneo. This challenging article will undoubtedly arouse the derision of skeptics, both in Canada and elsewhere. After many years of patient investigation, Mr. Burns, a responsible government official, shares the firm belief of his Indian charges that, deep in the unexplored mountain wilds of British Columbia, there still lurk a few scattered survivors of the mysterious Sasquatch, primitive creatures of huge stature, covered from head to foot with coarse hair, who have figured in redskin legends for centuries. Mr. Burns recounts a number of seemingly well-authenticated stories of encounters with these uncanny wild men who carefully avoid all contact with civilization. Scientific expeditions had sought them in vain, and it is generally supposed that, if they ever existed, the giants have long since become extinct. But the Indians remain unconvinced. Before setting forth Mr. Burns' narrative, I should like to make it clear that he not only holds a highly responsible government position as an Indian agent, but is keenly interested in the subject of the hairy giants, which he has studied for a number of years. He is confident that his charges are perfectly sincere in their beliefs. They are not in contact with tourists and have no reason whatever to cook up fables for the benefit of the unsophisticated. Moreover, the Indians are reluctant to talk about the Sasquatch, even to him, a friend of long standing, and absolutely refuse to discuss the matter with all white strangers. They are simple-minded, unimaginative folk. The invention of so many different stories of encounters with the wild men would be quite beyond their powers. I am convinced, said Mr. Burns, that survivors of the Sasquatch do still inhabit the inaccessible interior of British Columbia. Only by sheer luck, however, is a white man likely to sight one of them, because, like wild animals, they instinctively avoid all contact with civilization, and in that rocky country it is impossible to track them down. I still live in hope, however, of some day surprising a Sasquatch, and when that happens, I trust to have a camera handy. And now for my story. Utterly terrified, the Indian raced madly toward the Chehalis River, where his dugout canoe was moored. In pursuit lunged a giant of a man at least eight feet in height and broad in proportion. He was stark naked and covered from head to toe by a thick growth of black woolly hair. In his fright, the Chehalis Indian, Peter Williams, completely forgot the rifle he clutched. He did not attempt to stop and fight it out. When he suddenly caught sight of the monster standing on the summit of a huge boulder, all reason fled to be instantly supplanted by sheer panic as the giant growled and sprang toward him. Heedless of the tangled undergrowth, the Indian plunged wildly on, occasionally jerking his head around to gaze affrightedly at the horror behind. 
Reaching the riverside, he gave a frantic heave, and the dugout canoe shot out into the turbulent stream. The water, however, did not daunt the giant. He plunged forward in hot pursuit. The instant the bow of the dugout scraped the opposite bank, Peter Williams leaped ashore. The giant was now almost in midstream, swimming strongly. Once more the red man took to his heels. Well nigh dazed from exhaustion, he finally reached the frame shack that was his home. Frenziedly he herded his wife and children inside, bolted the door, and barricaded it with every article he could lay his hands on. Then, with his rifle at the ready, he tremblingly awaited the giant's arrival. Presently there came the sound of a heavy body forcing its way through the brush. Darkness had not set in yet, and peering through a crack, Peter Williams took a good look at the monster. It was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, one of the well-nigh fabulous hairy giants which, according to the Indian belief, still inhabit the unexplored wilds of interior British Columbia. Growling deep-chestedly, the huge figure made a circle of the hut. Then, putting one shoulder against a wall, he pushed with such tremendous force that the flimsy dwelling shook. The timbers creaked and groaned so loudly under the strain that the Indian feared the roof would collapse, and whispered to his squaw and children to crawl under the bed. They promptly obeyed, leaving their terrified lord and master to face the monster alone. To Peter's vast relief, however, the Sasquatch failed to force an entry after prowling gruntingly around the house for several minutes. He stalked away into the bush. Next morning, the Indian found the giant's tracks in the mud outside the shack. The footprints measured twenty-two inches in length. The foregoing is a condensed account of what Peter Williams later told me took place. I have known him for a good many years. He is intelligent, honest, and trustworthy. Speaking personally, I do not question the truth of his story, for it is only one of many reports concerning the mysterious Sasquatch or wild giants that I have heard firsthand from Indians under my official care. The incident happened, moreover, in my own district, the Saskaha, area of British Columbia. The word Saskaha means place of the wild men. Indians won't talk. Before proceeding to relate further incidents connecting with the mysterious Sasquatch, I ought to explain that for the past fifteen years I have occupied a government position as Indian agent stationed at the Chehalis Indian Reserve, some sixty-odd miles from Vancouver, British Columbia. My charges are also my friends, and because I have always reciprocated their regard, endeavoring to help them in every way possible, the Chehalis Indians gradually took me into their confidence and eventually told me all they knew about the Sasquatch, a subject never previously discussed with any white man. Being naturally of a proud and somewhat aloof nature, they are extremely sensitive to ridicule, and so avoid all mention of a topic which experience had shown merely exposed them to derision. If a white stranger inquires about the Sasquatch, he is invariably met with the guarded reply, No, white man won't believe. He make joke of Indian. Although I have never personally encountered a Sasquatch, there is ample proof that hairy giants formerly inhabited the Chehalis district in considerable numbers. Its ancient name, a place of the wild men, 
was until recently accepted as an echo of primitive superstitions, but the accidental discovery a few years ago of two crude cave dwellings confirmed the Indian legend that the later troglodytic period of this region was the abode of human beings of huge stature. Survivors of this prehistoric race, the red men believe, still lurk in the interior vastness. Indian legends tell of two tribes of Sasquatches who dwelt in this section of the country. They were deadly enemies and practically exterminated one another, fighting hand-to-hand with war clubs on the mountainsides. Skeptics may laugh at the idea of primitive man in the shape of eight-foot giants still living in British dominion, but nevertheless I have collected a good deal of evidence tending to prove that the Sasquatch may not be extinct. The Indians are by no means unintelligent, nor are they prone to imaginative lying, and when a keen-witted young woman such as Emma Paul declares that she saw one of the hairy giants close to her home one evening last summer, I feel convinced that she was telling the truth. Here is her story. I saw the Sasquatch a few yards from the house. I was standing by the door at the time. He was watching me closely, and I had a good look at his face. He was very big and powerful in appearance. Other members of my family were present, and they saw him. We went inside and bolted the door, but he prowled around the house for some time. Since then we have often heard the wild men. One of them used to rub his fingers over the window panes. Only a few nights ago a Sasquatch tramped loudly around the house. All of us heard him, and so did the white carpenter who lives next door. The Indians stoutly maintain that each summer the remnants of the Sasquatch hold a sacred gathering near the summit of Mora's Mountain, which commands a wide view of the vast solitudes all around. Prior to this rendezvous, the giants send scouts out to make certain the area is clear. It is these scattered investigators, the red men believe, that individual Indians have encountered. Anthropologists all over the world are naturally keenly interested in the alleged existence of these hairy giants, and about two years ago the University of California sent a party into the British Columbia wilds in search of the Sasquatch. They were equipped for a lengthy expedition, and knowing of my interest in the subject, came to my home and sought my assistance in enlisting the aid of the Indian guides and packers. The expedition that failed. In spite of the fact that they were offered ten dollars a day and all found, not one of my Indians would volunteer for the trip, declaring that such a quest was doomed to failure. The Sasquatch detecting the approach of so many strangers would immediately go into hiding. The Americans therefore set out without native helpers, but in less than a fortnight they returned, gaunt and trail-weary. Needless to say, they had discovered no trace of the wild man, and they vowed that, so far as ordinary white folk are concerned, the route to the top of Morris Mountain was utterly impassable. They were very disappointed at their failure, of course, and a few days after their departure, ironically enough, another of my Indians claimed to have encountered a Sasquatch. This Indian, an old man named Chehalis Philip, had previously told me that in his younger days he often saw the hairy giants. 
On this particular occasion he was fishing for trout in Morris Creek, a tributary of the Chehalis River. His canoe was gliding quietly along the sluggish mountain stream, close to the rocky terraced bank, when, without warning, a rock was hurled from the shelving slope above, falling with a tremendous splash within a yard of the canoe, almost swamping the frail craft. Startled, Philip hurriedly glanced upward to observe a huge man covered with hair leaping down the steep declivity with the agility of a panther. Under one arm he carried a bulky object that proved to be another boulder. Reaching a point of vantage, the giant deliberately slung the big stone straight at the now thoroughly scared Philip, missing the canoe by inches. Believing that the Sasquatch was about to dive into the water and attack him, the old Indian cast off his lines and paddled frantically away. Not all Sasquatch are unfriendly, however. Apparently their individual characteristics are just as strongly developed as those of ordinary mortals, as witness what an Indian named Henry Napoleon has to say. The first time I found out for sure that the wild men do still live around here, Henry told me, I did not see any of them. Some years ago, three other young men and myself were picking salmon berries on a rocky slope. In our search for fruit, we suddenly stumbled upon a large cave in the side of the mountain. This discovery greatly surprised us, for we thought we knew every foot of the mountain, but had never heard of a cave in that vicinity. Just outside the mouth of the cave lay a big boulder, we peered inside the opening, but could not see anything. Gathering some pitchwood, we lighted it and began to explore. Before we got very far from the entrance, however, we came upon a sort of stone house or enclosure. We couldn't make a very thorough examination, for our pitchwood torches kept going out. Finally, we left, intending to return in a couple of days and continue our search. Old Indians to whom we told the story warned us not to venture near the cave again as it was undoubtedly occupied by the Sasquatch, but we paid no attention to them and went off to examine the cave once more. To our great disappointment and surprise, we found that the big boulder had been rolled into its mouth, fitting as tightly as if it had been made for the purpose, and we were quite unable to move it. Some years later, I was out hunting deer in the same neighborhood. Just about dusk I saw something I took to be a big bear standing on its hind legs, but when I stopped and raised my rifle, the creature spoke in a tongue that very much was like my own. He invited me to come closer, and when I did so, I saw that he was a man over seven feet tall. His body was very hairy. At first I was terribly scared, but... His eyes looked kind, and he asked me to sit down and talk. He told me that during the winter the Sasquatch sleep like bears, and that their home is on top of Morris Mountain, where no Indian or white man could ever find them. They live on roots, fish, and meat, just like us Indians. Then suddenly it grew dark, and he slipped away. Another of my Indians, Charlie Victor by name, tells the following story of personal contacts with the Sasquatch. The Wild Woman 
"'There are now only a few of the wild giants of the mountains,' said Charlie, in his terse Indian dialect. "'They are rarely seen and seldom met, but some still live in the mountains around here. I have met them on several occasions. Some of the times I saw them, nothing happened. We stood and looked at one another, but the last time was not a happy meeting. It happened this way.' I was hunting in the mountains and had my dog with me. One day I came out on a plateau where there were several big cedar trees. The dog rushed up to one of the trees and began to growl and bark. Looking up to see what had excited him, I noticed a large hole in the trunk about seven feet from the ground. The dog kept jumping at the tree and scratching, looking around to me to lift him up. When I did so, he dropped down inside the hole. Then there was an awful noise. I heard the dog growling and barking and something screaming. I thought my dog must be fighting a bear and holding my rifle ready, called to him to drive the animal out. A moment later something shot out of that hole. I fired and the creature fell to the ground. I looked at it, and then I felt sick, for what I had shot looked like a naked white boy, about twelve years old. He was bleeding from a bullet wound in his leg, but when I stepped forward, he twisted away and let out a wild scream. From deep in the trees came a reply. Nearer and nearer came the voice, and every now and again the wounded boy would cry out as if calling directions. Then out of the forest came a Sasquatch woman. She was about seven feet tall, big built all over, and her skin was as dark as mine. Her long, straight hair fell to her knees. She looked so big and strong that I am sure if she had laid hands on me, she could have broken every bone in my body. When I saw her, I felt scared, and instinctively I lifted my rifle in case I had to defend myself. The wild woman ran toward the boy, bent over him, and then turned on me savagely, her eyes like balls of fire. And in the Douglas dialect she growled, You have hurt my friend! I explained in the same language, I am part Douglas myself, that I had mistaken the boy for a bear and was very sorry for the accident. Anyway, I pointed out that he was not badly hurt. She made no reply, but picking up the boy as easily as if he weighed nothing, lifted him to her shoulder and strode out into the woods. I do not think the boy belonged to the Sasquatch people, because well, he was white-skinned, and she called him her friend. No, she must have stolen him as a child, or run across him in some other way. Another well-authenticated Sasquatch encounter happened last September, when Indian hop-pickers were having their annual picnic near Agassiz, British Columbia. It was alleged that a young Indian man and maiden, named respectively William Point and Adeline August, both graduates of a Vancouver high school, had walked some distance from the picnic ground when they suddenly came across a Sasquatch. Hearing of the occurrence, and anxious to verify it, I wrote to William Point for particulars. Here is his reply. Dear Mr. Burns, I have your letters asking, is it true or not, that I saw a wild giant at Agassiz last September, 
while with the hop-pickers there. It is true, and the facts are as follows. Adelaine August and myself started for her parents' house, which is about four miles from the picnic grounds. We were walking on the railroad track when Adeline noticed someone walking along the grade coming toward us. I also saw this person, and first thought it another man walking the tracks as we were. But as he came closer we noticed that his appearance was very strange, and on coming still closer we halted in amazement and alarm. We saw that the man wore no clothing at all and was covered with hair like an animal. We were both very frightened. I picked up two large stones with which I intended to use on him if he attempted to molest us, but within fifty feet or so he just stopped and looked at us. He was twice as big as the average man, with arms so long that his hands almost touched the ground. His eyes were very large and as fierce as a cougar's. The lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face, which gave him a very repulsive appearance. Then my nerve failed me, and I turned and ran. I looked back as I ran and saw that he had resumed his journey. Adeline August had fled first, and she ran so fast that I did not overtake her until we reached the picnic ground, where we told the story of our adventure. Other Indians who were present said that the monster we encountered was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, a tribe of wild hairy giants, now almost extinct, who live in the district in tunnels and caves. Assuring you of the truth of this, yours truly, William Point. I do not doubt the authenticity, as he is both intelligent and well-educated. And now let me illustrate how extremely sensitive the Indians are regarding the Sasquatch, and how indignantly they resent their word being doubted. The Old Chief Broadcasts on May 23, 1938, a festival known as Indian Sasquatch Days was held at Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. Having obtained special permission from the Department of Indian Affairs at Ottawa, I took several hundred of my charges to the event. Unfortunately, in his opening speech over the radio, a very prominent official of the British Columbia government made a bad slip, thus offending all the Indians present who understood English. After a few preliminary remarks, this personage went on, Of course, the Sasquatch are merely legendary Indian monsters. No white man has ever seen one, and they do not exist today. In fact, thereupon his voice was drowned by a great rustling of buckskin garments and the tinkling of ornamental bells as in response to an indignant gesture from old Chief Flying Eagle, more than two thousand red men rose to their feet in angry protest. Chief Flying Eagle then stalked across to the open space where the speaker stood, surrounded by important dignitaries and others. Absolutely ignoring the entire groups, Chief Flying Eagle turned to the microphone and thundered in excellent English. "'The white speaker is wrong!' To all who now hear, I say, some white men have seen Sasquatch. Many Indians have seen them and spoken to them. Sasquatch still all around here. I have spoken. The chief then strode back to his place 
and signed to the other Indians to sit down, leaving behind him the government spokesman, whose face was exceedingly red. I was one of the party gathered about the microphone and immediately said a few words over the loudspeakers to appease the angry Indians. I corroborated Chief Flying Eagle's statement that white men have seen Sasquatch, adding that, although in sadly reduced numbers, Sasquatches are still believed to inhabit the vast mountain solitudes of unexplored British Columbia. During the many years I have been delving into this fascinating subject of the hairy giants of British Columbia, I have come into possession of much well-authenticated data. The oldest written record I have so far discovered is that of the late Alexander Caulfield Anderson. He was a noted explorer and pioneer adventurer, and Caulfield, a suburb of West Vancouver, is named after him. In the year 1846, when an inspector for the Hudson's Bay Company, Anderson was sent out by that company to establish a post in the then virgin wilderness in the vicinity of Harrison Lake. There was no doubt that he frequently encountered Sasquatches, because he mentions the wild giants of the mountains several times in his official reports. For the most part, he writes that they are as wary as wild animals, but on one occasion he and his party had to retire before a bombardment of rocks hurled by a number of Sasquatches entrenched on a hillside. Not until three years ago, however, did I actually meet and talk to a white man who had seen a Sasquatch with his own eyes. That man was a young mining engineer named Roy King. At first, Mr. King was reluctant to relate his experience, fearing ridicule, but after I had convinced him of my own firm belief that the hairy men still inhabit certain sections of British Columbia's wildest regions, he told me the following. The White Man's Story Some two weeks previously, entirely alone, he had been prospecting in the mountains adjacent to Harrison Lake. He had established his solitary camp beside a likely-looking creek that churned its turbulent way through the rocky walls several hundred feet in height. One evening, on his way back to camp, after a day of prospecting, he was walking. As he came within view of his campsite, he looked down and was surprised to see something moving. Thinking that it was probably a thieving grizzly bear, King stopped and unslung both his rifle and his binoculars. Focusing the powerful glasses, he was startled by the image they brought clear and close to his eyes. A giant of a man entirely naked and excepting for a small space around his eyes, covered from head to foot with black fuzzy hair. The monster was interestedly examining the prospector's personal belongings. The young man admitted that at first he thought he had been too long alone in the wilderness, and that he was seeing things. Then it slowly dawned upon him that through the glasses he was actually getting a close-up of the supposedly mythical Sasquatch. Thereupon he did the most sensible thing he could think of, stood perfectly still and quiet, watching through his binoculars, until a few minutes later the giant strode off. Roy King then made his way slowly and cautiously down to his camp. He found that most of his possessions had been moved, but nothing had been taken away. Mr. King's story bears out what the majority of the Indians maintain, that 
The wild giants are neither belligerent nor thieves. On occasion, however, they will purloin food when hungry. Last fall, an Indian named Paul and his squaw were returning from a duck hunt, carrying some half-dozen waterfall they had bagged. Suddenly, a Sasquatch stepped quietly out of the thick bush on one side of the trail and stood directly in their path. Utterly terrified, Paul and his wife dropped the birds and took to their heels. Some time later, accompanied by other Indians, they cautiously returned to the spot. But the Sasquatch had gone, and so had the ducks. Another Indian named Frank Dan, who asserts that he has seen the Sasquatch on many occasions, told me that one night, peering half-hidden from a window, he watched a Sasquatch take two salmon from the branches of a small tree beside the house, where he, Dan, had hung them to keep fresh until morning. Again, on a Sunday about a year ago, when most of the natives were at church, a Sasquatch entered the village, and seeing that all was quiet and nobody apparently about, went into one of the houses. An Indian who had stopped at home saw the wild man come out, burdened with loaves of bread and smoked salmon. Perhaps the strangest and most terrifying experience any Indian has had with the Sasquatch is that related by an Indian woman named Seraphine Long. Now very old, Seraphine claims that many years ago, when she was a young girl, she was kidnapped by a wild giant and lived in the haunts of the hairy monsters of the mountains for close to a year. She has told me the story many times, and I have set it down as nearly as possible in her own words. What happened to Seraphine Long? Before doing so, however, I should explain that among the natives of Canada, both Indians and Eskimos, there is a shortage of marriageable girls. Probably a similar condition exists among the Sasquatch, thus explaining the action of the wild giant in this case. I should also like to add that although her present-day photograph hardly bears this out, the evidence of her contemporaries goes to show that in her girlhood, Seraphine Long was considered one of the most comely girls in her tribe. Here is her story. I was walking down towards home one day, many years ago, carrying a big bundle of cedar roots and thinking of the young brave Qualak, Thunderbolt, I was soon to marry. Suddenly, at a place where the bush grew close and thick beside the trail, a long arm shot out, and a big hairy hand was pressed over my mouth. Then I was suddenly lifted up into the arms of a young Sasquatch. I was terrified, fought, and struggled with all my might. In those days I was strong, but it was no good. The wild man was as powerful as a young bear. Holding me easily under one arm with his other hand, he smeared tree gum over my eyes, sticking them shut so that I could not see where he was taking me. He then lifted me to his shoulder and started to run. He ran on and on for a long time, up and down hills, through thick brush, across many streams, never stopping to rest. 
Once he had to swim a river, and then perhaps I could have gotten away, but I was so afraid of being drowned that I held on tightly with my arms about his neck. Although I was frightened, I could not but admire his easy breathing, his great strength and speed of foot. After reaching the other side of the river, he began to climb and climb. Presently the air became very cold. I could not see, but I guessed that we were close to the top of a mountain. At last the Sasquatch stopped hurrying. Then he stooped over and moved slowly, as if feeling his way along a tunnel. Presently he laid me down very gently, and I heard people talking in a strange tongue I could not understand. The young giant next wiped the sticky tree gum from my eyelids, and I was able to look around me. I sat up and saw that I was in a great big cave. The floor was covered with animal skins, soft to touch, and much better preserved than we preserve them. A small fire in the middle of the floor gave all the light there was. As my eyes became accustomed to the gloom, I saw that beside the young giant who had brought me to the cave, there were two other wild people, a man and a woman. To me, a young girl, they seemed very, very old, but they were active and friendly, and later I learned that they were the parents of the young Sasquatch who had stolen me. When they all came over to look at me, I cried and asked them to let me go. They just smiled and shook their heads. From then on, I was kept a close prisoner. Not once would they let me go out of the cave. Always one of them stayed with me when the other two were away. They fed me well on roots, fish, and meat. After I had learned a few words of their tongue, which is not unlike the Douglas dialect, I asked the young giant how he caught and killed the deer, mountain goats, and sheep that he often brought into the cave. He smiled, opening and closing his big hairy hands. I guess that he just laid in wait, and when an animal got close enough, he leaped, caught it, and choked it to death. He was certainly big enough, quick enough, and strong enough to do so. When I had been in the cave for about a year, I began to feel very sick and weak and could not eat much. I told this to the young Sasquatch and pleaded with him to take me back to my own people. At first he got very angry, as did his father and mother, but I kept on pleading with them, telling them that I wished to see my own people again before I died. I really was ill, and I suppose they could see that for themselves, because one day after I cried for a long time, the young Sasquatch went outside and returned with leaf full of tree gum. With this he stuck down my eyelids as he had done before. Then he again lifted me to his big shoulder. The return journey was like a very bad dream, for I was light-headed and in much pain. When we recrossed the wide river, I was almost swept away. I was too weak to cling to the young Sasquatch, but he held me with one big hand and swam with the other. Close to my home, he put me down and gently removed the tree gum from my eyelids. When he saw that I could see again, he shook his head sadly, pointed to my house, and then turned back into the forest. 
My people were all wildly excited when I stumbled back into the house, for they had long ago given me up as dead. But I was too sick and weak to talk. I just managed to crawl into bed, and that night I gave birth to a child. The little one lived only a few hours, for which I have always been thankful. I hope that never again shall I see a Sasquatch. That is Seraphine Long's story, the only one on record of a Sasquatch ever abducting an Indian girl. I could relate more instances concerning the wild giants of British Columbia, seemingly well-attested cases that I have collected over a period of many years. But in this article, the few I have recounted must suffice. Is it possible that primitive hairy giants still inhabit the mountain solitudes of British Columbia? Scientists and others may scoff at the very idea, but many Indians are sincerely convinced that Sasquatch, or at least a few of them, live to this day in the vast, unexplored interior. And like the Indians, I also believe. Copyright J.W. Burns, Indian Agent Chehalis Indian Reservation Published in The Wide World, a magazine for men. January 1940, Volume 84, Number 502. The illustrations and photographs of the witnesses and area were not such that I could scan them. This is the end of the story. Welcome. This collection of five stories is being brought to you by William Jevning, and they are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one is... A Bigfoot encounter in California from the Yuba Feather River area between Laporte and Quincy, California. Story number two A Night in the Sierras. Number three Butte County, Oroville, California. Number four Wood County, Wisconsin. And number five Strange Story, Clark County, Washington. STORY NUMBER ONE CALIFORNIA'S YUBA FEATHER RIVER BETWEEN LAPORTE AND QUINCY, CALIFORNIA I had a very up-close encounter in June 1988 on the north fork of California's Great Feather River between Laporte and Quincy in a very isolated area. There is next to no traffic in this area. On this occasion, it was me and my two dogs by ourselves, and it was a very unnerving experience. I had hiked into this spot, on the North Fork of the Yuba and Feather Rivers, a place called Middle Fork. I found a spot near a tree line so I could tie my food up in a tree to keep the wildlife out of it. I made camp and cooked a few trout that I had caught earlier. The campfire was still burning lightly, as I was getting a little tired, so... I decided to turn in. It was about 9 p.m., and the fire was now just about out, just smoldering a little, so I didn't put any water on it. I just climbed into my tent and laid down on top of my bedroll. I let my dogs run around because they always stay close to camp, if not in the tent with me, and I started to doze off to the crickets chirping when suddenly I woke up and it was as if I had one of those dreams where you're falling. I could tell there was something very wrong. It was dead quiet, 
no crickets, nothing. And my dogs came running into my tent, shaking. These dogs were very aggressive, usually. Not mean dogs, but would bark at anything that came around. One of them was a 95-pound pit bull. I was scared shitless, so I grabbed my rifle and pistol, along with a flashlight, and stepped outside the tent. I couldn't see anything, but I had that sensation of being watched. I grabbed some more firewood and threw it on the embers left from the dinner fire. Then I heard some very heavy footsteps right behind me in the trees. There was also a very strange odor, almost like a cross between a skunk and something dead. This thing circled my campsite all night long. Well, at first light, I packed up and started out, and this thing followed me almost the entire day. I could hear it, smell it, and even saw it through the woods about seventy-five yards away from me, taking an almost parallel trail to me as if to make sure that I left its territory. I never shot at it with my rifle, as I don't believe in killing things for sport. I've never gone back to that place, but I would love to go on an expedition back there with some other people. This is the end of story number one. Story number two. A Night in the Sierras It was June 1988, and I'd been camping for three days in the eastern Sierra Nevada mountains. I was in my sleeping bag and listening to my shortwave radio at a loud volume. It was almost 9 p.m., and there'd just been an announcement for the Lone Ranger on radio station KNX. Only a few minutes before, a party of three went by on the trail, and I exchanged a few words with them about the local fishing. It was only moments later when a scream rang out that could turn your hair white. It was no further than 100 feet away from me, but out of my line of sight due to a nearby ranger snow survey cabin. I've never to this day heard anything even remotely like that sound, not even in the recorded sounds that Peter Gutillo was kind enough to send to me. Despite the immediate trembling fear I felt, I got up and grabbed my six-volt flashlight and put the light to the ground ahead of me. I walked over to the trail in the direction of the sound. The size of what I saw running off toward the river almost makes me wish I'd never gone to look. I remember shaking, standing there, hearing it thrash through the small lodgepole pines and brush down by the creek. The only way I have of estimating its size is by the administrative pasture corral that was between me and it. Even though I never saw it face to face, the split-second glimpse I got turned me into no better than a frightened three-year-old who'd just seen a monster. A conservative estimate of its size would be seven feet plus. There's no way this was a bear or a mountain lion. I've spent hundreds of nights in the mountains, and I know what I saw and heard, and I've been looking for it ever since, ever since I realized it was out there. I think it was there all the time, but I never put it all together until last year, 1991, when I met a man who told me about a sighting of a Sasquatch a few miles away from a favorite quail hunting spot of mine 
down in the transverse ranges. What got me to go investigate was that something had made me feel uneasy enough to pack up and leave early from a great hunting trip. At the time, I had no idea, but when I went out to the area of the man's sighting and heard banging and whistling in the chaparral, that's when I realized I'd heard that unique high-pitched whistle before when I was in Kern County. Since then, I read all I could on the subject, and this year I started to blow a slide whistle in an attempt to attract the creature so I could get a moving picture of it. I know this is a lot harder to do than it sounds, and I know it'd take cunning and nerve to get close enough to actually film it. Well, getting back to what I remember about that night, the prominent thing would be the smell. Initially, I noticed nothing, but over the next few hours, I kept smelling what I thought were rotting oranges. At times, it smelled very strong, like when you have a bag of fruit in your refrigerator and open it and find them green and moldy. I'm sure it was around for a few hours. I don't know how to describe it, but you could feel it. I kept hearing things, first on one side, then on the other, down below me in the creeks. I just sat there with my single-mantle Coleman lantern on, listening. I kept trying to rationalize it away, but the experience was shocking, very hard to deal with in your mind. I decided to build a fire, and then I felt safe. At about 1 a.m., I found myself drifting off to sleep. My lantern was almost out of fuel, so I filled it and put it by my ground cloth and slept until first light. I remember thinking the birds were a good sign that it had moved on. When I woke, the lantern was still burning, which helped me realize it wasn't just a bad dream. All I could think about was getting as far away from there as I could as fast as possible. But I spent a half an hour looking for tracks. But all I could find were some splashed areas near the creek, and some small plants that had been pulled up and put down on a stump that weren't there the day before. All I can say about a description is that it weighs a lot more than I do, and it appeared black, although I never put my light directly on it. It was gone from view in under ten seconds. In retrospect, I realize I should have stayed around the next day and looked for physical evidence, but the only thing I could think of was getting out of there. That evening, the people, they were on horseback, by the way, who had gone by just prior to the scream the night before, came by going the other way. I asked them if they'd heard the thing and what they thought it was. These people worked cows in the area for years. After a short discussion about the sound I'd heard and the speculation on whether it could have been a fisher, a weasel-like animal with dark fur, the older man in the group suggested that it must have been a Bigfoot. I let him bring up the subject. When I got back to town, I went to the Forest Service station office, and a man with a backpack was filing a report of how half of his food vanished from a tree in the middle of the night. He said his food was seven feet off the ground or higher. He was about six feet tall. He tied two bags of food to one side of a bear rope with a parachute cord and counterbalanced the other side with a piece of wood of equal weight. 
he put a 30-gallon plastic trash bag over the food about 1 a.m. that night, the night after my adventure, because it had started to rain. When he got up, the plastic bag had been stretched apart, and one bag of food was gone. Nothing was ripped, chewed, shredded, or torn. The other half was still in the tree. I've yet to meet a bear that exhibited such traits. I mentioned the word Sasquatch, and all four Forest Service employees that were in the room went silent and looked around at each other. One man said, Ah, oh, must have been a marmot, a burrowing rodent. Since this time, I talked to a man who has lived in the area for almost sixty years. He told me that he and his eighty-year-old mother had seen a nine-foot-tall red Bigfoot in the area two years earlier. He described the tracks perfectly. He said he never talked about it with anybody because no one would believe him. In the same area, in 1986, two scientists doing wildlife studies reported hearing loud screams that they couldn't identify. This is the end of story number two, A Night in the Sierras. Story number three, Butte County, Oroville, California, 1969. Outtake from Weird California by Mike Moran, Joe Ostrow, Mike Mercenelli, and Mark Sergan. Under the chapter, Bizarre Beasts. The Big Hairy Man of Cherokee Road. Charles Jackson and his son, Kevin, got the shock of their lives on the afternoon of July 12, 1969. They were at their home on Cherokee Road in Oroville, well south or east of Bluff Creek, but not very far from the Plumas National Forest. Father and son were working peacefully in their backyard, burning rabbit entrails, when a huge ape-like creature loped out of the woods and stopped to stare at them. The beast was seven to eight feet tall, had large breasts, and was covered with three-inch-long gray hair except on its hands and face. The Jacksons, only fifteen feet away at the time, said that after it spotted them, it walked up to the outhouse, looked around, and suddenly ran back into the woods. Another Cherokee Road resident had a run-in with the ape-man around the same time as the Jacksons' incident. For weeks... Homer Stickley's farm had been haunted by something that screamed in the woods at night and stole apples from his trees. Then, one moonlit night, Stickley saw the culprit, a tall, hirsute, two-legged creature that walked through a nearby meadow, pausing to stand by a stump. By September, at least a dozen people had reported giant ape-like things running around Oroville but the Cherokee Road sightings remained the most documented and credible of the lot. Six years later, people were still seeing the beasts and finding their huge footprints in the area, but the creatures remained at large. By then, Oroville had established itself as another home of North America's most famous land monster, Bigfoot. That's the end of story number three. 
Story number four. Wood County, Wisconsin, 1985. My sister Natalie and I decided to take the four-wheeler out after dark against my father's words. We followed the trail from our property into the McMillan Marsh. There, we were able to run along a dike system between water reservoirs. It was midwinter, and my sister, Nats, was driving the four-wheeler, and I was riding shotgun behind her along the dike. It was lightly snowing. Dark grew in fast, and we were suddenly surrounded by darkness and snow, with two headlights to show the way. Suddenly, a large seven- to eight-foot creature walked up onto the dike in front of us about fifty yards away. It stopped, turned, and looked right at us. We both noticed how the wind blew the long, light brown hair about a foot long on its side apart, and it was white underneath as the hair parted from the wind. Our four-wheeler lights were not high enough to see the face, but it had a large muscular chest and arms and walked like a man. The chest was a little more hairless so that you could see rippling muscles underneath the dark hair. It had very long arms, and, well, it did not walk like a human. It sauntered along, totally unafraid of us. It swaggered with long arms swinging at its side, and then it went off the dike and into the wilderness. We were shocked and horrified. We sat in shock and then throttled over where its location was. There were very large footprints in the soft snow. We hurried home never told a soul until years later. We compared what we saw, and our stories were exact. We will never forget that night. It was not a wolf, a bear, or anything human. I stand by that with my soul. If it were just me, I would have blown it off as a figment, but Natalie has every detail to the exact of my own. Miriam Wednesday, February 29th, 2012. That's the end of story number four. Story number five. A strange story in Clark County, Washington, August 2006. My brother-in-law and I were headed east on Lucia Falls Road, northeast, when we saw something on our left sort of like it might have been a shooting star. It was still light outside, but barely. We thought it might have been a light airplane crashing. He was a medic. So we pulled over to the side of the road and got out of the truck and listened, but heard nothing. No cries for help. No sounds of metal burning. Silence. This area is due south of the city of Yakult and east of Louisville, Washington only a stone's throw away from Molten Falls State Park proper. We had been over on Yakult Mountain Road earlier and had come down this way via Northeast Kelly Road where the intersects with Lucia Falls Road. Thinking we should help if it was a plane down, we worked our way through the brush and trees to where the railroad tracks parallel Lucia Falls Road, and I told him that one of us better run back and get a flashlight in case... It was a downplane, and somebody was hurt. He yelled he was going on ahead to see if he could find the source of the flash of light and look for survivors. At this point, 
I stopped and turned around real quick to race back to the truck. I have a high-powered spotlight that was portable. In the back of my mind, I was hoping that the batteries were still good. When I turned to make my way back to the truck, I could swear I saw a big man higher up on the road near the truck, just standing there. But I caught my foot, looking down for a minute to get a better grasp on where I was stepping, and when I looked up again, he wasn't there. I called out to him, but got no reply. Limping a little, I finally got back to the truck. The batteries were working fine, and it was almost completely dark by this time. I grabbed my wife's cell phone off the seat, tucked it into my pocket, shouldered a loop of a rope just in case, it, and grabbed the lantern. I don't remember seeing another car on the road anywhere, but I remembered wondering where this man had come from that I had seen on my way up from below the apron of the road on my way up to the truck. He was nowhere in sight. I turned and hurried on to catch my brother-in-law and wondered, too, where he was because, by now, I was barely finding my way, and it was getting darker. I called out to him, but no answer. I moved on slowly toward where I thought I had left him at the railroad tracks and looked both ways on the track, but didn't see anything or my brother-in-law. I called out again and listened intently. There was no sound of anything, no wind, not even crickets. So I cupped my hands around my mouth and called out my brother-in-law's name in both directions of the railroad tracks, but I heard nothing, saw nothing, and began to wonder if that man-figure upon the road was him a few minutes ago, but I couldn't figure out how he would have gotten there from where I left him. I picked up a rock and placed it in a strategic spot on the rail of the tracks to mark where I should head for the road and began walking east on the railroad tracks, aiming my lantern to the left and right of me, looking for him. Now I'm thinking something happened to him because he wasn't answering. Darkness fell quickly as I pressed on, uncertain I was going in the right direction of the flash that we thought we saw. I don't know how far I walked on those tracks, but my ankle was beginning to hurt, so I stopped to loosen the strings on my shoe and call out for John again. Still, no answer. And now I'm growing concerned. Should I go back and wait at the truck or press on? I listened but heard nothing but the sound of my own breathing. I checked my watch, and it was already after eight in the evening. I called out for John again, then turned to head back to the truck to phone home when I remembered I had my wife's cell phone in my pocket. The lantern scanned the tracks and train left and right of the tracks as I came back upon the marker rock I had placed on the rails. No sign of John, but maybe he went the other direction. I thought, so I left the marker rock on the road and walked the tracks in the other direction for about fifteen minutes, calling out for him all the while. About the only thing I noticed was the quiet. Where was my damn brother-in-law? It's roughly nine o'clock at night now, and no sign of John, but I didn't want to leave him behind. I sat down and pulled out the cell phone and dialed home. I tried to explain where I was and what had happened, 
but I couldn't explain where John had wandered off to, and I told the gals that I wasn't leaving here without him. Just as I was about to hang up, I heard footsteps coming and the disturbance of gravel on the railroad ties. I flashed the lantern around and down the tracks where I heard the footsteps and thought I saw John coming. John! I yelled out several times. Then I told the girls he was coming and hung up the phone. John looked a mess. Hey, where have you been, buddy? I asked. He reached out and put his big arms around my neck and said he was glad to see me. Well, I didn't know you went in this direction. Bud, where you been? What happened to you? He just hung on to me and said, Can we get me back to the truck right now? I asked, Are you hurt? No, John replied, Just scared shitless. What happened? You've been gone over an hour. We started walking back towards where I had the marker rock on the rails. John sort of leaning on me. Man, you're not going to believe this. Believe what? I asked. What the hell's been going on with you, bud? Uh, I saw something, he said. Something huge. Yeah? What? Is there a plane crash? I asked. I gotta sit down, he groaned. My heart's coming out of my chest, and man, I didn't see any plane. We walked with arms around each other's shoulders till we got back to my marker on the, on the rail, and sat down in the gravel and turned off the lantern. John sat there in the dark for a few minutes with his head down between his knees, trying to collect himself. He was visibly shaken. He told me there was something out there. He said, Something man-shaped, very tall, but looked like the thing had hair on it. Then I lost enough light to tell much other than it stood off to the side of the tracks in a hulking manner, me facing it and it facing me for a long time. I heard it breathing. I swear, I heard the thing breathing, and I froze. Man, I just froze stiff. My mind shut down, and I couldn't think what to do. I, I thought I was seeing things, he continued. It was something nightmares are made out of, and I don't recall I ever saw anything or a man that big before, and I never want to see anything like that again. I started to back up and run, but I couldn't see well. Kept tripping on the rails, cross ties and such, and falling down. I, I think I'm all skinned up. Let's get home. Back home, he recounted the same story to the girls. He was all cut up on the knees, skinned up like, and bleeding with one bad place on the side of his right rib where he said he fell on something, maybe a railroad railing or one of the ties. My brother-in-law is a big man, tall, and he describes this thing he saw as huge and hairy. Then I started wondering about the dark figure I saw upon the road that I called out to when I went back for the flashlights. My son and I went back to the area the next morning and walked two miles in either direction, but found nothing. No sign of any plane down, no fire, no nothing. From John's description, we thought maybe he had a meeting with a Sasquatch, but we weren't sure. We never did know what the flash of light was. Whatever it was scared him, and he's a seasoned hunter, son of a slew of seasoned hunters, and he don't drink. So... I don't know what he saw. 
I didn't see or hear anything other than the figure on the road, but I believe my brother-in-law did, and he believes it must have been a Sasquatch. My name is Marshall. I've lived in this area all my life, and so was my wife. This was a first. August 2006 That ends the reading of the five stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.